Welcome to Kilts and Culture with USA Kilts. We're here to talk about all things Highland dress, the cultures and the heritage that created it, and how to enjoy the kilt in the 21st century. From tartan and trues to haggis and history, we cover it all. So sit back, grab your beverage of choice, and enjoy the show. Today, we have a special treat. In honor of St. David's Day being the other day, uh, March 1st, we are going to try Welsh cookies. Um, we got these from the infamous Welsh Cookie Company. They do a bunch of festivals around the U.S. Um, they're friends of ours. We like eating their cookies on occasion. So we told them, send us your three, you know, two popular flavors and one traditional. Um, so yep. we're going to give a little bit of feedback about that. All right. So with that being said, we need to have some milk. And there's nothing better to drink your milk out of than our highly coveted, highly sought after Glencairn glasses. Glencairn milk glasses, just like mom used to use. Exactly. Well, it, mommy, mommy, can I? No, no, the other milk. Okay. Um, yeah, when you don't have a lot of glass options in the shop. All right, do not pour that on your kilt. All right. It'd be good content, but it'd be bad for the kilt. All right. Tasty. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, though, if you look into the uh, the lore, as it were, of Welsh cookies, which I did briefly, um, they aren't necessarily served with any kind of accompaniment. Um, okay. I you would think that maybe there's a thing you'd have as part of a meal, but you just eat them anytime. Yeah. There's no there's no traditional like you know with like scones <coughs> you have cookies, with tea yeah. or anything like yeah. that. So so the milk is probably a good idea, but yeah. uh, not not necessary. Yeah. So. Um, one of them. Uh, I asked uh, the gent from uh, Infamous Welsh Cookie Company, what do you pair with these? Should be milk, water, scotch, whatever. Um, and he gave me a list of, with this one, you would drink milk. With this one, you could drink coffee or tea. This one, drink scotch. Um, like, preferred pairings. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, I just got milk. That's fine. Figure, milky yeah. cookies. Kinda. I think, I, I, like I said, I think, I think that's to, it's a nicety, but not necessary. Yeah. You just as easily just grab them on your way out the door, you know, to work in the morning as, as any other time that you'd eat them. So. Yes, they, they tend to be a little bit drier than normal cookies, mm -hmm. more sponge-like. So I'd still like, when I eat them, I would still want to eat it with something. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps I'm tipping our hand too much. Yeah, that's good. Oh, go ahead. And I do have some, I have some notes because I did look it up. And it's interesting you mentioned that they're a little dry because they are kind of, um, they originally started off as a basic flatbread. Um, kind of like an unleavened bread. And then towards the end of the 19th century, um, with the advent of things like baking soda, um, they started making the recipes more complicated. So, you know, sugar was easily available, of course, by then. Um, so they started making them more cookie-like than biscuit-like or pancake-like, which right. is what they uh, had been. But uh, they're sometimes referred to as griddle cakes or even occasionally as griddle scones, although they're not really too much like a scone. Um, but they're basically, it's the flour, some lard or butter, and uh, sugar, and then uh, whatever flavoring you're going to put in them if you want extra flavoring. Spices uh, might be like cinnamon or nutmeg are very traditional. Um, and then currants or uh, saltines, not saltines. <laughs> um, These are very dry. Those fancy raisins. Um, what is it? I had it down here. Saltines. Saltinas. Saltinas, that's it. Saltinas. Um, or raisins or currants, let's say that is, okay. is the most traditional flavoring, and but it's come a long way since then. So, you okay. want to try a cookie? Sure. 
Okay. You you introduce it and tell us which right, one well, we're trying. And... Well, you want to start with it? We'll start with the <clears throat> traditional one, right? Okay. okay. So have a traditional cookie. Thank you. And again, this is this is basically this is just the flour, sugar, black currant, lard, eggs, milk, and baking powder, and nutmeg, and salt. Okay. Nutmeg is very common. Mm. Cracking it in half. Um, mm -hmm. It's yeah, it cracks reasonably easily. It doesn't make a snapping noise, but it cracks reasonably easily. You're so patient. I already mm -hmm. bit into mine. Okay. It is kind of biscuit-like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. hmm. Um. Again, it's kind of expanded as a tradition over the past hundred years. Um, they can be served as is, but sometimes they will serve them with jam. And there's a version called a... Um, I can see it with jam or with something... Again, yeah. sweet and gelatinous, mm -hmm. um, but to give it more moisture. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a jam split is one where they'll—that's in South Wales apparently—and they'll actually add some jam or butter uh, and serve it kind of like a, a sandwich. So imagine almost like a okay. like a Welsh cookie Oreo, mm -hmm. except kind of a thing. Um, another thing that they'll do, I guess, in um, how would it, it, it absorb the butter? Do you think? I don't know. Um, I could see it. I, I think if, it, if it's if it's really good, rich butter, I'm imagining something like Kerrygold. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah, care. Yeah, yeah. I Kerry wouldn't butter. care if it absorbs or not. Yeah. It'll just be you know like just nice. Yeah, I'm just like but like, would you heat it up and then would the butter melt? And if it melted, would it just squirt out? Or because of how hard assume, it is, would it I, absorb? I would assume in? you'd have to keep it pretty cool if yeah. you're going to do that. Yeah, because yeah. otherwise it's just going to become buttery. Um, another thing they'll sometimes do to make them moisture is put in uh, shaved apple. Okay. So you can add apple flavor yeah, and add yeah. some, some more body and everything. Yep. I didn't know what currants were. Really? But uh, not like... No, I didn't. Um, not off the top of my head. There's no I, currants in mine. I've probably... I've yet to encounter a currant. I've had okay. a couple. Um, it's one of those where if I probably had it, I'd know what it was. I was all prepared to give this one a, a negative rating. Like, oh, currants. Blech. But yeah, it's actually not bad. I still think you need to drink with it, though. I think you, it's. I think it's definitely a milk and cookies kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Personally, I'm not. It's not hard, one. like, like a Toll House, you know, Butterfinger or butter cookie, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, but it still sucks the moisture out of you to a degree. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. But milk on the is other a good hand, choice, on other hand, I would say it's it's very it's a very, uh, they're easy to make. Um, they would make them on a yeah. originally like a baking stone or then an iron griddle. Um, so some of the alternate names, which I'm not going to, I would just butcher the Welsh if I tried to do the Welsh name, so I'm not going to do that. Um, but sometimes, again, they're referred to as griddle cakes or slabs or slab cakes because of how they were made. Um, there's apparently one other version, which is called like, um, a, a mountain cake, um, okay. or Welsh mountain where they put in extra leavening. So it kind of puffs up more. Okay. And then they would put, um, sugar syrup over it like a frosting like like a like a okay. sugar frosting kind of okay. like, like on a, a fritter or something yeah yeah which is supposed to simulate like the snow caps of the mountains in snowdonia so it's kind of and that's kind of like a variant on it it's like even sweeter basically yeah i could see adding anything with a strong flavor would get mm -hmm. me salivating i'm stuck on the dry thing would get me salivating more to to be less dryish mm -hmm. i think all right number two we're gonna the... try the chocolate peanut butter. Yeah, we're at the opposite end of the spectrum now. This is a wholly modern yeah. rendition. Yeah, and these have, you know, straight up lard in them. 
like all of these. Mm -hmm. So they're not necessarily healthy, but it's fine. You know, they they add that for for binding and for for the yeah the, the taste. Of lard it. lard gets similar, a bad rap. Yeah, similar lard, like lard haggis. There's a lot of lard in there for you know. Mm -hmm. Okay. This one's a little bit more moist. Mm -hmm. And the chocolate peanut butter flavor is nice. Mm -hmm. My kids would really dig this. It's I'm a very light flavor. Yeah. It's not... Yeah, it's very delicate. Yeah, it's not like yeah, eating not. A, a Reese's Pieces. Yeah, um, it's not. Or something that's like... Um, artificial chocolate, artificial peanut butter mm -hmm. in it to really give that punch yeah. of like a, 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 a Toll House cookie or whatever. Right. Um, it's like a note. Yeah, it's just like a, it's like a nice uh, chocolate, yeah. chocolate peanut butter note. Yeah, to it, but it's very very delicate, very light. Again, I mean, I guess you didn't necessarily consider these as a tea cake, but it feels like something you'd have for afternoon tea. It really does to me. I was I, I could totally see having these with some Earl Grey or something. Um, yeah, this is good. I'm a traditionalist, so I still like the. I like, I like spiced cakes anyway, mm -hmm. so I kind of like the traditional better than this, but it's, it's good. Yeah, it's. More fun than yeah. the chocolate bars we had last yeah, month. Yeah, oh, cheese. <laughs> um, it's it's like a very very dense cake. Mm -hmm. As yeah, it, it's not. It's sort of between. It's like the. It's between a cookie and like a super dense cake mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. It's good to remember though that like a hundred years ago, to two hundred years ago, this is more like what a lot of traditional sweets and baked mm -hmm. goods would Fair. be like. Yeah, um, they're not trying to make something contemporary. It's right. the Welsh cookies. Yep. They're doing their own. Yep take on something traditional so mm -hmm. yeah and they really did have a they, they increased in complexity a hundred years ago but it's still a very simple thing yeah I, I would encourage anybody who's interested in this to try making them at home you can absolutely find recipes online and it's fun i could easily see this as a family activity uh with the kids yeah it's like halfway between baking cookies and making pancakes basically so i could totally see it as a weekend project with your kids yeah yeah you so we have one last one to try okay um, last one is cherry hazelnut Mr. Eric. I'll probably like this. Yep. And the last note I got off of the wiki uh, about these was that there's another version called the Newport Lovely, which is actually, um, was a form of uh, Welsh cookie that was traditionally made by men as a as a token for their uh, sweethearts. Sometimes as an engagement gift, even. So it was, it was kind of like, you know. Made with a love spoon. That's <laughs> Maybe. It's entirely <laughs> possible. Maybe you use the love spoon to mix the batter for the for the cookie and you give there it to her go. and say, You're, you sure are cute. Let's get hitched. That's a great Welsh accent. How are you? <laughs> Thank you. That was the most convincing Welsh accent he's ever done. <laughs> well, I try. I try. <laughs> oh, okay, they got real cherries in this one, so that's a big plus. Mm -hmm. Hazelnut's good. Again, I like spices. I like hazelnut. Yeah. It's almost like I have European ancestry. I like all this bland European food. The odd thing is, I'm finding that I'm drinking my milk out of this mm -hmm. like I drink scotch and I'm pulling air <laughs> through it. <laughs> That's got to be interesting. Get a good nose for the 2% mm. Wawa milk. Mm. Yes, mm. indeed. Mm. I can smell the grass from the, from the pasture. Mm. Ah, yep. <laughs> yeah, wedding gift or engagement gift. It's oh. neat. Um, for those in the audience, we were debating on uh, pairing these with the different things that they said you should pair them with. 
but I decided that pairing one with scotch and then another one with milk would probably not sit too well. So I didn't want to do a two-hour show after drinking scotch and milk milk together. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Good stuff. Yeah. Nice. Okay, all in all. Belated Happy St. David's Day to everybody. Yes. So what is your favorite out of these? Honestly, I like the original best because I'm a traditionalist and it had the it had the cinnamon nutmeg flavor. The um, this last oh. one with the, uh, the cherries and the hazelnuts. Tuck them in my mouth. Well, I can't do that. Oh, how dare you, sir! Mm-hmm. We will lose all of our audience. We just did. <laughs> if they didn't after the Welsh accent, or at least my mom. <laughs> um, yeah, the um, in in that order, I'd say I like the traditional one the best because I like the spices. The oh. um, the cherry hazelnut one is tasty because the hazelnut really came through. Um, and the chocolate peanut butter one was good, but I might as well just make a regular chocolate peanut butter cookie. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, um, I'd probably go in a similar order. I'd say the cherry one first, because it, and basically because it had the strongest flavor. Um, what I'm noticing for me is I want the stronger flavor, you know, profile coming through as it were. I don't want to have to guess at what's in it. That's good um, milk. Oh, delicious. <sighs> um, it was a good year for milk. <laughs> I don't know if you could say that. That's uh, it shouldn't be <laughs> chunky, right? No. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I'd say the the cherry one because it has the most strongest flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, then the current one. Okay. Okay. There you go. I can dig on that. There you go. And then chocolate peanut butter because it's it's much softer. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's yeah, not as nice. strong. Yeah. They're all, they're all good, and I do recommend the company. Yeah. If you don't want to make them yourself, then absolutely, that's a yeah. they're a very good vendor. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, I'd say. Um, as far as, I, I haven't had many Welsh cookies, but I'd say if I had to give it a 1 to 10, I'd say probably a 7.5. That's okay. the number I'm going to go with. Okay. The uh, I'm not a huge fan of super bland food, um, so I overall I generally would probably prefer a regular cookie or whatever, although okay. I'm not really a super sweets kind of guy anyway. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, seven and a half. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I don't know if I can give a number for just the whole experience or a number for the whole experience. I'd say yeah, probably like a seven. Okay. Um, for my for my favorite, then I'd probably say you know maybe seven and a half. Okay. You know, but I've had other Walsh cookies before, and I do have a favorite from a local person who makes them for me. So, um, is that your I, wife? It might be. It might be. It's very possible. So it absolutely has to be your favorite one. Yep. 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 Hi. Very good. All right. Should we start off with questions? We can. We can. If you're ready, I am. Guys, if you have any questions for us, load them in the comments. And Lucas is indicating he has one over there, so we'll start off with Lucas. What do we got? All right. Um, BJ is asking, why are some tartans much more accessible than other tartans? Accessible how, BJ? Accessible as in the mill's readily stock support them or accessible as in they're not restricted does he have a uh do you have any thoughts on that lucas what he's going for um no specific indicator there okay um i would i would indicate i would i would assume stock supported because that is a question we get pretty frequently that's probably around along those lines yeah um the one thing that you know why are some tartans 
more readily available and others are less readily available, or there's, you know, 20 different variations of McDonald Modern versus one variation of Steward of Ardshiel Ancient. Um, basically, it comes down to this. This is a commercial enterprise. There are five or six major mills in the UK that actually stock support tartans. And the problem is they are only going to weave and stock support what they think that they can actually sell. Yeah. Um, if they can weave 500 meters of Stuart Royal and you know sell that in six months, why would they weave 500 meters of Stuart of Ardshiel Ancient, which is going to take them 20 years to sell? Um, so they're basically trying to churn through their inventory. Um, it is, you know, a romantic thing. Tartans are definitely steeped in history and tradition, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it is a, an industry. And without m money coming into the industry, it all goes away. So basically, it's whatever the mills think is commercially, financially, or, you know, commercially viable to do. Um, some mills weave more, some mills weave less. Uh, La Caron and House of Edgar probably have the largest two collections, um, if I had to guess, they would probably have 250, 300 tartans easily. Um, in, <coughs> actually, probably more than that. Probably closer to 500 or 600 or 600 um, in each of those mills. Where maybe Martin Mills only stock supports 150. Hmm. It's just whatever the mill wants to do with their looms, and you know how much they need to churn through to make a profit. Do you do you find uh, <coughs> have you found over the years that certain uh, tartans? become bestsellers for certain mills like say all of the Armstrongs really prefer the Martin Mills Armstrong over the LaCaron Armstrong does that tend to happen and in which case do the mills <coughs> kind of get a sense of that so they know how they're well, ranking against <coughs> their competitors or I doubt they know how they're ranking against competitors mm -hmm. um, I would I would go to a broader place and say that collections like the weathered okay. tartans from LaCaron um, have Lock Aaron's really the only place you can get some from Dog Leash and a couple from Martin Mills. Yeah, but they but, have it. Yeah, Martin or Lock Aaron has it on lockdown. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So they do the majority of those, whereas House of Edgar does the majority of the muted tartans. So mm -hmm. they will see that that is a trend and kind of corner their own little market in that way. Okay. Um, the they won't necessarily know what their competitors are doing uh, unless they literally ask all of their retailers, "Hey." How much, you know, uh, how much of this are you selling? How much of that are you selling from yeah. that mill? Yeah, um, yeah. And that would just be a little awkward, awkward. potentially. Yeah, 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 definitely awkward. Hmm. So then it's all the more reason for them to try and come out with collections that would uh, be a new thing, like the the Tartan Tweeds. Yes. Which are becoming very hot right now. Um, is that Martin Mills who has most of those, or is that... Martin Mills has several. Um, yeah, they okay. just came out with La Caron has a bunch. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the, the other thing, I'll, I'll go back to the other point. Um... There are some tartans which just kind of tick along doing almost nothing and all of a sudden have a boom for one reason or another. Okay. Um, we've sold a lot of Bruce this year. I don't know whether that's because it's just the there's a, a Bruce, you know, clan gathering somewhere. Mm -hmm. If the mm -hmm. uh, if the, the 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 group has really just pushed like, hey, we all need to get kilts. If people are getting it in anticipation of the Robert the Bruce movies that are coming out and have come out. <laughs> um like, there is a real effect, but we've been seeing, randomly, a lot more Bruce recently than we had Interesting. in the previous, you know, 15 years. Huh. That's, there's a so, whole uh, psychology and, and statistical research that could go into that. Yeah, I yeah, bet. yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of different... 
there's no one answer. It's kind of a, a cross-section and like a hundred different you know, directions yeah. and variables that yeah. kind of play into it. But it makes me think, I'll, I'll be curious to see how, in, in my example, <clears throat> uh, how the tartan tweeds do. Because it does seem like they're, 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 there's a vibe there people are catching on to. I think it'll be interesting to see who wins. You know, as we see the sales come in, see see who's who's got the who's got the choice tartan tweeds and who has the eh, tartan well, tweeds. But for the tartan tweeds, I'll say this: um, La Karen started doing them. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have enough to say first. Um, well, actually, no, they didn't start doing them first. Um, there was kind of a a weird small movement, if you will, um, for the uh, uh, the Harris tweeds. A company or two in that weave Harris tweeds started weaving tartans out of okay. Harris tweed, and some of them started doing custom runs, like small custom runs of your individual tartan, but it was out of Harris tweed type fabric. Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> Lock Heron took a couple different tartans, and they're not really clan tartans. It's their Patriot tartan, mm. and then they just kind of tweaked around the designs a little bit and some of the colors a little bit, and they started doing some tweeds. Now, but it's generic or universal type tartans. Mm -hmm. um, Martin Mills did it recently and came out with a collection of like six or 10, somewhere in there. Um, and those were all, I think they're all clan tartans. Okay. So maybe they're trying to go the little bit more traditional route. Um, all in all, if I'm gonna guess, it's just a fashion trend. Oh yeah, I think it, um, it's definitely a fashion trend. I think it's something that will, I think they're banking on it. Well, I don't know how quickly they'll die out. I think it's gonna—it's something that will become could become a mainstay for people who are really into kilting, and but they want something different. They want their clan tartan, but they want an alternate. Yeah. You know, it's uh, so yeah, exactly. I have. I have Obviously, two. that's what we do. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we'll see. No, it's, it's, it's cool. It's to, in my mind, it's gonna go similarly to the all black outfits. Okay. Um, going back about ten years, let's say. Um, all black outfits, meaning solid black kilt, solid black jacket, black hose, black shirt, black tie, became the in thing for the rental industry just for something different to do. And then from there, they kind of leaned into the grays and the more like tonal things where it's like different gray, solid, no, not solid, excuse me, gray on gray tweeds like Highland Granite and Sterling and a bunch of other ones right, right. that were about eight six or eight years ago kind of gained popularity mm -hmm. and then from there it kind of went a little bit more towards the weathered tartans and all the people started wanting weathered just as a different more earthy feel mm -hmm. and with the weathered tartans a lot more the tweeds um came in and the popularity okay. of tweed in general okay. outside of highland wear even yeah, yeah um really came into being in the last 10 years kind of had a bit of a, of a resurgence. Right. So, so then, that's that Downton Abbey effect that we yes, talked about. Yes, exactly. Yeah, people wanting the, the <clears throat> old stuff. And now they're just kind of, uh, the mills are trying to figure out what the next cool thing is going to be. So, hey, let's make some tartan tweeds and see what happens. Mm. Um, so they're just exploring and kind of pushing things for, for, uh, forward and evolving a little bit and trying to do different things that are just fun and different within Highland wear. So that's kind of how it's going. I think it's pretty cool, but at some point it will, in my opinion, become a bit of a trend where it'll crest and then come back down on the other side. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, did you have a comment? Yes, I had another question. Sure. Okay. Um, David was saying he has our wool 
Kiltos, um, assuming the, the colored Kiltos that we have, um, says he's a little bit not allergic, but gets irritated by, by wearing them after a while. Okay. Uh, did we have any other suggestions for him um, in addition to the cotton kilt hose that we have? Um, the Does he mean the hand-dipped kilt hose or the uh, regular? I, I believe hose? it was the regular colored hose. Mm. Okay. The yes, no, kind of, sort of. Um, <laughs> the, the easy suggestion is get a pair of dress socks that are super thin and wear them underneath the kilt hose. Um, myself personally, with the hand-knit kilt hose, after wearing them for a full day, my eggs might, my, my eggs, my, my legs might itch a little bit. Um, and then when I, but when I take them off, I can definitely feel like the relief and like, ah, and just scratching my legs. Yeah. Um, yeah. cause you're wearing, you know, a, a sweater right on your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you do have any kind of wool, well, allergy or sensitivity, you might find a little bit of an issue there. Um, either I would suggest A, the Lewis hose, um, which are a merino wool and acrylic kind of blend. They're yeah. a little bit softer. Yeah. Um, or the cotton hose where there's no wool at all. Um, so that kind of bypasses the entire allergy potential. I'd opt for the Lewis hose first. The cotton hose are really cool. Um, but I think if you're, if you're trying to look sharp, um, if you want something that's more all year round, um, <coughs> I'd go with the, the Lewis hose. Um, the cotton hose are great, but I definitely prefer those to, I just save those for warmer weather because um, they look good for what they are, but they also look a little on the thin side. Yeah. So um, if you want something that has that feel of being, ah, oh, kilt hose, then go with the Lewis. Um, does what you wash the wool hose in make any difference? Like if you if you gentle wash with something like a woolite or a hypoallergenic soap or anything, does that help or is it just? I don't know. Okay. I don't usually wash them. Okay. It's usually... So they can stand Kelly up on their own, huh? No, Kelly uh, washes Oh, okay. oh they yeah, do yeah. get washed. Okay. Yes, they do get washed. Okay, okay. Um, the <laughs> staff infections. No. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, uh, no, it's, I'd say woolite and then just lay them flat to dry. But, you yeah. know, hand wash them in a sink or in a tub or that kind of thing. Yeah, because they will, they, I know most of the time, if if you don't wash wool properly, it will get scratchier because you're changing the, the, you're the way the, it. Yeah. Yeah, you're felting it. Yeah. yeah. So. Hmm. Cool. Okay. Good All luck. Right. We'll do one from the preloaded questions, Eric. Okay. <clears throat> All right, I'm gonna stop with. Uh, I don't know if he, you prefer Lewis or Louis, but Louis Collingwood uh, was asking us a, a more of a cultural question. Um, how do you handle it if someone is trying to take a quick picture of you, like even with your back turned to them, when you're in a store or another public place? I mean, he, he says I've had this happen. At first, it didn't seem to like a big deal to me, but the more I think about the idea, the more it just seems rude. So. How do you deal with yeah. unwanted attention? Photography. Yeah, especially <laughs> photography, yeah. Yeah. Um, there will be kilt paparazzi. Um, it is part of, you know, what you do. Think of it this way. You are, in your own way, a mini celebrity where it's people don't see, you know, ooh, the guy in the kilt, oh my gosh, no one's going to believe me. So they want to oh. take a picture. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I have a little story about that. My, uh, It happens to me on a quasi-regular basis, meaning, you know, every couple months or so, if I'm out at dinner or something like that, um, you kind of just have to deal with it, you know, kind of get over it. It's going to happen. There's nothing you can do. It is human nature. They see something different. They're going to want to capture it. Everyone has a, you know, a a phone in their pocket now, so they're going to want to take a picture of it. Mm -hmm. Um, My favorite story with this is we were doing a uh, festival out in uh, Dublin, Ohio. 
and we had our little 10 by 20 booth and we're standing inside the booth and there are three teenage girls standing outside the booth and the one girl pulls her phone up in like selfie mode and is looking over her shoulder at me <laughs> kind of like this and then you know clicking the picture and I'm looking over I can see she's doing it yeah so she you know sheepishly takes the picture and then you know puts her head down and goes over to her friends and they all kind of huddle around so I just walk up behind them and said excuse me if you ask nicely I'll let you take my picture right, uh, right. and there's oh, and they all just like scurry off tee. But, yeah, tee. Yeah. Um, yeah. but it's just one of those where it's just like I don't know people are people are gonna be people and sometimes you know they don't have manners sometimes they do yeah it is what it is that was kind of because um, when this question came in I actually I, I went out to the to the production room and was asking guys okay guys you know I know this has probably happened to all of you guys what do you think and the consensus was kind of what you said, but it's like, you know, if you would have asked me first, I would have been happy to give you a photo yeah. or even do a selfie with you, and we could have had some fun with it. But as it is, you're just being rude. Um, so, you know, it doesn't earn any respect or desire to play along. So, I mean, I guess you could do something, if you know I'm doing it, you could do something like make a face or, or flip them yeah. off and try yeah. to ruin the photo, but... I don't know if that's sinking to their level or not, in a way. Um, the uh, one throw up some horns and uh, yeah, you know. You know a lot of people I know that'd be face. fine, but yeah. you know the um, uh, the one the one response that my friend Annie gave me was that uh, this happened to her once, and she and she was saying, you know, the, what I should have done, but I didn't think to do it at the time was I should have whipped out my camera and taken a picture back at them, just to drive the point home. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like answering the question, you know, the what's under question is like you gotta decide what level you want to take it to in terms of whether yeah. you want to be polite or if you want to get in their face. It's gonna, I think it's gonna vary from person to person. You can ask them for know. copies of the photo. Like, hey, would you mind forwarding that to me? I think it's great. Right. Thanks. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, I would do the KGB thing, just go and, and take the camera, and be like no pictures, you know, and smash <laughs> them. But, but that's just me. Yeah, that I may be frowned upon by police. It, it might be. Perhaps, might be. perhaps. But. Um, but I, I do personally feel you should call them on it somehow, because yeah. it's just it's not just us who deal with this. Um, it, but it's just kind of it's an invasion of privacy. And yeah, you're in a public place; they have every right legally to do it. It's just rude, you know. So, so yeah. I would probably play nice and say, look, you know, we could have had a nice time here if you had had a little bit, a little bit more moxie, a little bit more guts, and actually ask me. Um, but I would definitely call them on it, you know, somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mr. Lucas. Yes. Uh, we had a question from Roy, and Roy was asking, do we make 4XL and 5XL kilts? Sure. Yeah. It's, there's no XL to our kilts. They're all yeah. going to be custom made. Yeah, it's all custom. Yeah. So whatever size you need, just let us know the waist, hips, length. We can make it to whatever size from, you know, infant to largest man in the world. Yep. And we kind of have. And, and I think our record... We, 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 we mentioned this a few months ago. Maybe it's changed since then. What's our record waistband? 76, was it? I think, it's I think it was, yeah, it was in the 70s. Yeah, like yeah. 76 yeah. inches waist. So, yeah, we can absolutely fit you. Any, And it's not just us. Any custom kilt maker worth their salt should be able to fit you. Um, if they give you problems about that, then... They're probably not making it themselves. Yeah, if they're probably just a middleman. Yep. Uh, another question here from Baird, and Baird is asking us, how long does it take to get a custom tartan woven, 
And is it better to get more than just one kilt when you're ordering? Mm. Um, custom woven tartan depends on the mill. Some mills have a six week turnaround on cloth. Other mills have a 14, 15 week turnaround on cloth. So it really depends on which mill you're going to. Um, and the just like anything, economy of scale. The more material you order, the cheaper the price will be. So if you order just enough for one kilt, it's gonna be a bit more money. If you order enough for five or six kilts, price is gonna come down accordingly. Yep. Always best to get your get your friends, get your family, get your whole club yeah. interested in the project. Um, it can be a really good experience that way too. Um, there's a lot of future photo ops that are gonna happen if you have like your whole crew in the custom tartan that you did, which is awesome. Um, but uh, it makes it cheaper. Yeah. Yep. All right, Mr. Eric, do another preloaded one. Would you prefer a technical question or another culture question? Yes. Okay, well, let's do a technical one. This is a, a simpler one. Um, Casey was asking us, if you're ordering Gillie Brogues online, how can you best hedge your bets or, or make sure that you're going to get a good fit? It's true of ordering any clothes online, yeah. I think. Well, but... I, clothes, it's more shoes for me. Yeah. Um, if you... The Gilly Brogues that we carry are run pretty much true to size. Um, so we always tell people they run true to size. So whatever dress you you normally wear, get that. Um, it's But ultimately, you're buying shoes online. There is still a bit of a, you know, fudge factor. There's still a bit of a, you know, nervous. It's not going to fit quite right in the width or quite right in the length or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so they're just like buying a pair of sneakers or, you know, pair of Birkenstocks or whatever footwear you buy online. Um, don't wear Birkenstocks with a kilt though. Um, <laughs> but whatever kind of footwear you wear online, unless you know the brand and you know your exact size in that brand, it's always gonna be a little bit of a crapshoot. Um, I'd say for, for our Gillies, we get, Lucas, back me up on this, for return percentage of returns mm -hmm. in Gilly Brogues for exchanges, maybe maybe 5%, one out of 20. Yeah, it's hmm. pretty It's pretty minimal. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So I'd say, when in doubt, order the size that you wear most often and then try it from there. Yeah, and that's, we can only speak to what we know since we're not in the shipping rooms of other companies that sell Gilly Brogues. Yeah. Um, we do sometimes advise going like a half size up <clears throat> if you think you need a little more room. Um, width. If, if you need a width, yeah. We do sell one type of shoe that comes in wide sizes. Um, but that's more of our top top of the line one, and our regular uh, Gillies do not necessarily come in wide sizes, so you might want to fudge the size based on that. But we try to make returns or exchanges pretty easy. We're not Zappos, but we try to be as close as we can because you know, I mean, because the whole rationale of Zappos is correct. You know, buying shoes is difficult. You know, even in person yeah. it is. Um, whoever you're dealing with, whether it's us or somebody else, I, the other thing I would say is. Uh, try them on at home and make sure you're trying them on on a carpeted floor and the shoes are nice and pristine so if you do need to return them you can easily do so and nobody's going to give you a hassle and we we won't but yeah it's yeah. just uh, yeah and uh, we're on for about 10 minutes don't yeah, just try them time. on give it some time you want to give it about 10 minutes so the, the heat in your foot can warm up the leather kind of relax it and see if it's comfortable in about 10 minutes don't just try them on and then you know say oh, oh don't fit put them back in the box mm -hmm. number two don't just look at the size on the side of the box and send them back. The kilt or the uh, the Gilly Brogues that we sell are made in UK sizes, which is a size different than your US size. Yep. So if you order a US ten and a half 
we will send you a US 10 and a half slash UK nine and a half. Mm -hmm. Now the size inside the shoe is gonna say nine and a half, but that is equivalent of a US men's 10 and a half. Yep. So just keep that in mind. Don't just open the box and say, oh, they sent the wrong shoe size and send them back. Try them on, you know, wear them for about 10 minutes, wear them on carpet, and then make the judgment call from there. Yeah, hopefully, and again, hopefully that's the same with other shoe sellers, but yeah. we can only talk about how we do it. So. Yep. Good luck. Cool. You want another one for me or you want one for you, Lucas? I'll do another one for you. Okay, now I'm gonna hit you with a culture question then. Uh, Tim, Tim Bacon was asking us, um, this is this is an interesting one. Do you think it's okay to use Scottish terms or Scottish spellings uh, or pronunciations of slang if you're an American? For instance, like saying dram or we or canai or you know things like that. You know, like canai, canai, tomato, tomato. Is that is that mocking or is that an homage or is that somewhere in the middle? Is um, it, it I, I could see it going both directions. Mm -hmm. Um, I could see it just like, um, if I started walking around the house and, you know, calling my son a wee baron and, you know, my wife, oh, pour me a dram and, and, and talking with a fake accent, my wife would roll her eyes at me so hard her retinas would disconnect. That being said, um, working a little bit of the lexicon, you know, the, 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 the you know, the, the phrases into your lexicon isn't necessarily the end of the world. Um, mm. Like <clears throat> the Scottish word numpty means basically idiot. Um, so I will, you know, jokingly around the shop, call somebody a numpty if they do something dumb. Um, is that appropriation of Scottish terms? Is it odd? Is it wrong for me to do? <laughs> Probably, but the, um, it's <laughs> it's just jokingly, obviously. But yeah, yeah. the- um, Yep, you're just joking. <laughs> I know. Um, the okay. yeah, it's it depends on how often you're using it. If you're trying to mix it with an accent or not, um, and how generally accepted the term is. Like dram to me is easy. That's that's short. Sure. Yes, that, that is a measurement. Yeah, yeah, that's not um, a wee dram. It's if you're drinking scotch, that I think it would be fine to say that. Mm -hmm. um, it would sound weird if you said like, oh, give me a wee dram of tequila. Like, right. right um, so right. in the appropriate context, I don't see a big issue with it. It can be overdone like anything else. And if you constantly try to do it and, you know, pretend you're Scottish, I can yeah. see it being a bit annoying, yeah. but. Yeah. I mean, if you go around trying to be Mike Myers all the time, yeah. that's obnoxious. Um, and, and it's like, would you go around, you just, when you mentioned tequila, I mean, it's like, would you go to a Mexican restaurant and pretend to talk in a cheesy, uh, ASA? You know, yeah. or like, you know, like killer bees, you know, or, you know, Simpsons, the bee guy kind of accent. Yeah. That's, that's horrible. You know, but, but on, but on the flip side, I know I have some UK slang worked into my vocabulary because I was raised with it. You know, I had parents who said cheers all the time or bloody hell or, you know, all this other stuff. Um, because, you know, my, my mom came a very, came from a very strong English background. Right. And we had family friends back in the in the UK and England and Scotland. So it's, you know, it's, <clears throat> it's you're gonna, if you come by it naturally, um, I think it's okay. It's just, if, if you're forcing yeah. it, yeah. you're forcing it and turning it into a pastiche yeah. or a caricature, then that's not okay. Yeah, when I, Personal I talk opinion. to, no, but, I, yeah, I think, I'm, I'm, I'm coming around to how you're phrasing it. I think you phrased it better. Thank you. Um, the, when I'm talking to companies in the UK, 
I will often use their terminology and I'll use those slang words, uh, you know, a couple quid if it, you know, hey, how much is the new kill, how many, you know, how much is the new kill pins? Is that a couple quid or like, is it six or seven? How much? Yeah, yeah. And they'll think that's fine because it's words that they normally use. Yeah, you're meeting, over here. you're meeting them halfway so that you're enhancing the communication. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, just, it's I'm yeah. just shortcutting the communication as you, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, but over here, it can be a little odd, kind of like eyebrow raising, like really, dude. Um, mm. But at the same time, if you're using it earnestly um, in the proper context. I don't see that, and you're not overusing it. Mm -hmm. I don't see that big of an issue. Yeah, I think, again, it's, um, are you a sincere student of the culture? Um, is it, if it's something you were raised with, or if it's something you're studying and you're a sincere student and you admire it, then I think you'll naturally strike the right tone for this kind of stuff. Whereas <laughs> if you're playing with it as a toy, then you're gonna, it, it will come out like you're using it as a toy, and people will be able to tell, you know? And I would, I would also add this, make sure you know a, what the word really means, yes. and B, <laughs> you know how to pronounce it. Mm -hmm. It's, mm -hmm. if I started calling people numpties, like, I would sound like an idiot. And the, yeah. it's, yeah. you know, Kenne, or like, you just said, you know. Right, and I don't, I don't use that word. Kenne. So I didn't know. Like, no, Kenne. You know, or, yeah, you, know, you wind up being like a middle can, schooler. Do you can, yeah. do you know, or, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, I yeah. don't know. It would, it would just sound weird if you're purpose, purposefully mispronouncing words or not purposefully mispronouncing words, then yeah. you would automatically seem like an idiot. Yeah, and, you're, and yeah, if you're trying too hard. Yeah. You know? I mean, it, you may find sometimes that uh, where you're at in this country or the time that you live in, uh, the slang may catch up with you. Like, no worries. Nobody used to say that. And then freaking Crocodile Hunter Dundee, Crocodile Dundee yeah. came out. And all of a sudden, everybody was saying no worries. And now it's a common part of American slang, too. It started in Australia. Yeah. So, you know... Uh, but at the same time, I'm not going to go down to the, you know, to the bank and say good day, mate. You know that that'd be dumb. So trust your instincts. Yeah. You know. Okay. Yeah. Play around with it. Yeah. Just don't play around with it excessively. That it just seems weird. Yeah. Yep. Mr. Lucas. All right. This question is. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> this question is from Liza, who's asking, do you guys have a recommendation on what tweed vest? Hugh would work well with Irish national kilts. The Tartan Irish national? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, charcoal or a gray. You can't the go green, wrong. yeah, the green in that is a little. It's, it's a little Kellyish green. Um, yeah. so I generally would say like check out the gray Braemar jacket we have, um, or charcoal or something like that. Um, it's mm -hmm. something in the in the black gray family, um, and then you could you could even pair it with a pair of gray hose mm -hmm. and kind of balance it out top and bottom, and then the the kilt kind of stands out in the middle. I'll put in a, I'll put in a plug for my favorite tweed, which is uh, Beater's Gray, okay. which actually has some nice blue and tan and uh, other flecks in it. Um, so it really just tones well with a lot of different things, and I think you can you can sort of pick up some of the yellow in that tartan, if not the green. You know what I mean? I'd have to see it right on top. The to me, the in the American, and I'm assuming she's in America, world of matchy matchiness. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm in Scotland, wouldn't matter. Brown tweed, fine, done. Um, yeah. <clears throat> in America, if we're trying to match the tweed, um, throwing blue in with a green one, it depends on the green in the tartan. So yeah. if there's, 
I'm, it's not as blue as you may be imagining from yeah. my using that term. Yeah. But um, I, I, I trust it. But I would also say there are, uh, I would say that a brown tartan could work again because there's yellow in that tartan. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so try to leave the green on its own and think in terms of how you're going to tone with the other colors that are easier to tone with. Yeah. Is how I would play it, I think. Yeah, or you know. go much lighter green or much darker green. Well, yeah. no, I wouldn't go darker, but much lighter green um, than what is in that, like a Lovett green or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. might work. I think House of Edgar has a moss green color um, hmm. uh, in one of their tweeds, uh, so that might actually work with it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, when in doubt, swatches. Get a swatch. Yeah. Yep. We have swatches of tweed for sale on the website. Um, if you don't know, order a couple different swatches. You can actually physically lay it right on top of the fabric, take it out in the sunlight, take it in a, you know, a regular indoor room kind of thing, um, and just check out what it looks like under different lights and be your own best judge on that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Cool. All right. Mr. Eric. Okay. All right. Uh, John Charles Scott was asking us uh, for a sense of a general consensus uh, if there is one, on formal jackets or doublets. And he's including Prince Charlie's as well as Sheriff Muir's and Montrose, you know, the whole realm of formal wear, uh, about colors other than black. He's seen images of dark green and red and blue Prince Charlie's, but he's not sure if he sees people really using them in real life. So do people... How popular are alternate colors of formal jackets? Is it a thing? Is it not a thing? Do people actually... Is it something worth considering? <coughs> Um, is it a thing? Sure. Uh, it's not, <clears throat> it's not common, but it does happen. Like we do do on occasion a red regulation doublet. Yep. We have one in the store right now. Uh, there are, you can do other colors, but the, the mileage you're going to get out of a different color may be a little bit less than a just solid black Prince Charlie. The mileage you're going to get out of a sheriff mirror may be less than the mileage you get out of an argyle. Hmm. So it comes down to budget and how special you want to be, how special right. you want to feel. Right. Do you want to be the only person in the world with a Highland Green tweed sheriff mirror jacket? And if so, where would you wear that? You have to kind of think of the Everywhere. context. <laughs> Fair. <clears throat> you have to kind of think of the context where you would normally wear a sheriff mirror but it's going to, like, to your point, wearing it everywhere, you would look costumey mm -hmm. versus you could. having the correct yep. context and the correct materials for that context. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. Um, it's, uh, we, we tend to sell them to people who want to be uh, extra peacocky. You know, they have, they have a large personality. Um, sometimes they're super, super in tradi into tradition, so they're being inspired by more retro looks. Again, like Victorian, Victorian stuff, stuff and everything. Yeah. Um, but uh, it is a different way to go than traditional black formal wear, which actually comes from the Victorians also, where you're supposed to be <coughs> simply elegant with everything except for the tartan, um, and that's kind of borrowed from Saxon formal wear, where you're supposed to be simply elegant and not detract from the outfit of the girl you're with. The reason you wear a black and white tuxedo is so that you are elegant and trim, you know what I mean? And put you together, are an accessory. But you are an accessory. She's the belle of the ball, quite literally. So... Um, if you want to be the bell of a ball and, and your partner who's going with you to the event doesn't mind, then, yeah, flaunt it. But, but yeah, a, um, the more bright the color of the jacket, the less you might feel like it's appropriate for every occasion. So bear that in mind. But I think a lot of people yeah. have uh, the alternate color formal jackets. They collect them. You know what I mean? Yeah. They'll have a black one. They might even have a tartan jacket. 
not not formal, obviously, but yeah, but a tartan a tartan day jacket. You know, they're into it up to the hilt. Yeah. is what I'm saying. The one thing I'll point out, the um, uh, friend of ours that uh, is in the uh, Philadelphia St. Andrews Society, very very nice guy, and he was looking at getting a red jacket, a red regulation doublet. Okay. And because a couple other members have it, and it looks, you know, it's it's striking. Yeah. Um, but if you're in it from a fashionish perspective where you're doing it to be different and just wear something for the, not shock value, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what he said, and I was like, huh, was my mama told me, he's from the South, he said, my mama told me, you ever, you get a red jacket, you wear that red jacket once. <laughs> okay. Like basically, okay. once you've worn a red regulation doublet, either you will wear it every single time and you're gonna be the, that will define you then you're the guy that wears the red jacket. Yeah. Or you wear it once and then put it away. Yeah, because um, what, do you, what do you do for an encore? Yeah, effectively, yeah. yes. Yeah, interesting point. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Mm. Indeed. Mm. Yes, mm. Yes, mm. <laughs> Your turn. Mr. Lucas. Hey, uh, I have a question for you, which I don't think you guys have been asked before. Uh -oh. uh, Mickey was asking us, who actually came to the store and got his kilt recently. Cool. Very cool. Thank you. Uh, Thank he you. was he was asking us what kind of wedding favors would you guys recommend huh. other than scotch? And the thing that comes to mind for me is when folks maybe order an extra yard of cloth and use it for <clears throat> ribbons or bows on like a little gift bag or, or a favor or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely available as an option, but... What do you guys think? Wedding, wedding gifts are what we more deal with, you know, like mm -hmm. groom's gifts and things yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. So a wedding favor, something you can produce in copious quantities so that everybody gets to take something home. That's an interesting question. The, it depends on your budget. Um, Absolutely. If you're, if you have, I would, if you tell me you want to spend $3 per item or $5 per item versus $25 per item, it's going to be a different response. Um, if you said to me that $25 per item and you need 200 of them, then I would say we can actually have like a, a custom cap badge made with your name and the date or, you know, wedding bells in the center and then the date on it or whatever. We could do something like that. Like that's just off the cuff off, you know, that's pretty BA pie sky. And yeah, I like that. um, option B would be a little, you know, a keychain, you know, keepsake kind of thing with a little it's basically a mini tiny sporin doesn't actually function doesn't open up but it's just a little piece of leather with a little bit of you know cow fur on the front and you can have your name and date laser etched on the back and those would be five bucks a pop so anywhere in that area would be two cool ideas yeah um I'm trying to think of anything else um wedding favors are usually like what 10 bucks i don't know ish you spend we made about our own. I know, yeah, a lot of people make their own. So that's it. My, I was gonna say, from a DIY standpoint, um, buying the cloth. You you might yeah. want you'd want to buy the buy the cloth if um, if possible. It'd be cool if you could get you know like poly, poly viscose or something else that's the tartan <clears throat> that you're wearing or somebody's wearing. Um, my thought was, uh, what if you did like sachets of like heather or um, lilac and stuff? You know, there's there's yeah, uh, yeah. there's certain flowers that are very traditional for Celtic wedding ceremonies. You could actually. If you have somebody who's crafty with that kind of stuff, you could actually make sachets, and that's something that would appeal to the ladies for certain. Um, uh, edibles. Edibles. Consumables. Yes, consumables. Hey, how about Welsh cookies? 
Um, no, seriously, consumables yeah. are great. No, Walker's then, shortbread. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tied up with a bit of tartan. Um, I've been to weddings where those are the wedding favors. Mm -hmm. um, for mm -hmm. Kelly, my wedding, um, ours was kind of like, we both love Ocean City, New Jersey. So we actually got Shriver saltwater taffy. We got some shells and like you know, made them into like holiday decoration things. We mm -hmm. did a lot of that stuff ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, but it was from a place that meant something to us and a lot of our you know, friends and family down yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so you could do that same kind of thing with Scotland, get, you know, Walker shortbread or get some Scottish candies yeah. um, and put that little, you know, gift basket, not basket, but little gift sack for each of the people at the wedding party mm -hmm. of Scottish edibles. And mm -hmm. a lot of times mm -hmm. for, for wedding favors, people don't, <laughs> I'll put this bluntly, people don't care about your wedding favors. So either you're going to spend a lot of money and not get a lot of bang for your buck out of it because if you do something and spend a lot of time on it, it the people who are receiving it don't necessarily care about the gift unless they are really, really close to you. Mm -hmm. um, so edible things are always a great idea because everyone yeah. loves a little cookie or a little treat. Um, or to the thing that you said you didn't like, the scotch glasses, um, that would be a great idea for if you know a lot of people who like drinking scotch or whiskey or things like that, just to have in their own house for when guests come over, they can have a nice glass to drink out of. So mm -hmm. those are things that we typically try to suggest to people are things that the end consumer, the people, your guests, will actually like, care about, use, or want to reuse you know, yep. years down the road or enjoy eating the candy and a different taste of Scotland yeah. that you're giving them at the wedding. I think, I, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think the, I think, um, the consumables is a, is a great idea. Not a lot of people want to keep the mementos of wedding favors around for a long time. Yeah. Um, I happen to have a couple that we have kept around because they're just kind of goofy and cool. Like we have these chopsticks that our friends did as our wedding favor. They basically just sharpied their names and date on the chopsticks. <laughs> Because they had Asian food for the for the uh, right for the for dinner. The reception. Um, but okay, so there. Look at our wedding planner guide and blog entries on the website because any of the traditions that go with a Celtic wedding, and I'm using the term very loosely when I say Celtic, by the way, but an Irish or Scottish traditional kind of a wedding. Um, for instance, if you were doing a scramble, which is basically where the bride and groom throw coins out on the ground and the kids go after them, you have little packets of coins, you know, good luck coins as a as a or chocolate coins. As a, as a wedding favor. If you do the jumping the broom thing, you could have little little toy brooms like you can get at Michael's, you know, use those. Give everyone cool. a dustpan and brush for well, the okay. Inscribed with the date. If you're Irish, you could do like a little miniature Bridget crosses. Yeah. Um, there's kind of stuff like that. I'd say basically think, pick a theme in your wedding ceremony and then build something tiny out of that. Preferably consumable. Yeah. There you go. I'm a genius. <laughs> Maybe. I hope that helps, actually. I really do hope that helps. Yeah. No, yeah. I think that was actually some pretty good thoughts. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Should I do another one? Sure. You want to do? Okay. Uh, Michael is wondering, um, do some kilt pleating styles resist losing their pleats better? Like, is uh, a box pleat or a knife pleat or any of that stuff better at keeping crisp, good-looking pleats over time than some other type of kilt? Or is that just okay. a maintenance thing that's going to come in with <clears> any... Any kind of kill. Yeah. Um, the, the style of pleating is not going to, in my opinion, is not going to really influence with how well the kilt holds a pleat. <clears throat> That's going to be more down to the mill, the weight of the fabric, those kind of things. Um, the, the material it's actually made of, I'm assuming, you know, wool versus cotton versus probably viscose versus acrylic. Um, 
those things are all going to hold pleats differently. The, the biggest thing I would point out is that if you're doing a box pleated kilt, those are probably the most difficult to iron because you're mm -hmm. ironing both directions. So a box pleated kilt, for those who don't know, basically take a two inch wide pleat and then on one side it goes that direction, the other side it goes that direction, and it's kind of a Z shape. Um, and then you just stack those Zs up next to each other um, and that's effectively what a box pleat is. So for that, in the actual ironing process, um, it's it takes a good bit amount of time because you're either uh, you're, you're putting in this, uh, the the uh, the stitches to hold the pleats in place, or you're using your fingers like we do here in the shop, and you're you know basically rolling the fabric a tiny little bit, just minuscule bits on each side of the pleat, and it's it's just, it's a very cumbersome process. Mm. Um, not a big fan of box pleated kilts myself. Um, as a kilt maker for that reason. Um, that being said, the a regular box pleat, meaning like a four yard kilt with wider pleats, is gonna be easier than a what a military box pleated kilt, if you will. Well it's the the Z's go much deeper on one side than the other. Mm -hmm. So it's it all depends. All that being said, a knife pleated kilt, which is 98% of the kilts that are out there, where it's just all the pleats go one direction and they're real deep on one side. That is gonna be the easiest to iron and re-iron later on when you have the kilt at home and after you've had it laundered and dry cleaned and that kind of thing. Yeah, basically. Yep. Yep. Do that one from here. Sure. Let's see. Kirk. I think I know who this is. Uh, I was asking, what are some of the reasons some surnames do not have a direct tartan? Why do some surnames not have tartans? Because no one registered it. Wah, wah. Yeah, it's not every name has a tartan. Um, a lot of names in the lowlands didn't historically have tartans. Mm -hmm. A lot of names are septs of a larger clan. Those don't have tartans. They would, or sometimes they don't, they would wear the tartan of the larger clan. Um, not every name has a tartan. Rager, I'm German. I don't have a tartan. Um, unless I decide to design one and register it, then I would have a tartan. So it's, yeah, it's... It's really that simple. It's really that simple, yeah. yeah. Um, you will sometimes, just like uh, years ago, there was a fad with uh, companies trying to sell you your, your ancient, honorable family coat of arms, um, and they basically pull it out of a hat. Uh, my parents fell for that back in the 70s. They had, oh, look, it's our the Munson family coat of arms. It's like, no, it's not. They had no precedent for it. You will occasionally find people trying to tell you that your name has a tartan and has a coat of arms and stuff, and there's not any data to back it up. So consider the source when you're doing your research. Um, check the Scottish Tartan Registry. Heck, check our website. Check our gar tartan gallery and plug your name in there. Um, a database that has some authority behind it will be able to tell you accurately, you know, whether you're a sept or whether your family was actually lowland and there isn't a family tartan. Um, but be careful if somebody's trying to charge you money for the privilege of letting you know your family tartan. Yeah, you know, you might, am I, I'm not sure if I'm expressing that well, but that's uh, no. It's there's a lot I'll, of misinformation out there. I guess is all I'm saying. Yeah, so. there's there's some more honorable salespeople and some less honorable salespeople. Mm -hmm. um, we've We've come into this you know, scenario more than once where somebody would say, hi, I have a tartan. Here was the tartan that my great-grandfather wore. Yeah. This is the, you know, they'll come up, you know, insert name here, 
Tartan, and I would say, no, that's Royal Stewart. And they'd be like, no, it's it's this one. It's, no, it's this the Tartan. Mac this is my Tartan. name. I know it is. Yes. Yeah. And I'm like, no, here's here's the picture. Um, a lot of times what will happen is, um, and I'm not trying to denigrate any particular company individually, but either the person who bought the kilt originally said, hi, I'm you know, McMallard Tartan, and they would say, oh, that's a sept of Stewart. Here's your Tartan. And they would hand them a Royal Stewart yeah. kilt. And then yeah. what the person heard was, oh, that's the McMallard tartan. McMallard, by the way, we just made up. Yeah. Um, alternatively, the less honorable way would be, hi, I'm McMallard. Oh, here's the McMallard tartan. You should yeah. buy this one just in order to make a sale. Yeah. So it's varying degrees. There's a lot of different you know things that could kind of play into it. Um, but do your research on what tartan should be you know you can look for if you're a sept and that kind of thing as mm -hmm. eric alluded yeah. um if you type the name on the website on usakilts.com we actually load in all of the septs for each of the different names so mm -hmm. if you type in mcmichael you're going to get steward of appen will be one of the results right. and that's because mcmichael is a sept of steward of appen and then when you click on the tartan it'll actually say known septs include and it's going to list all the different names out so again just do a bit of research so you know what tartan you're getting. And I would like to say this also. Um, just a reminder, clan tartans, family tartans, is a tradition which is only like a couple of hundred years old. If your family does not have a tartan associated with it, that does not make you any less of a Scot or any less of an Irishman or any less of a Welshman or any of that. Your, your, your heritage is still your heritage. And don't let that bum you out. You know, you pick a tartan that you like and wear it with pride anyway. Yeah, there's district tartans, yeah. universal tartans. There's a lot of different stuff out there that if you want to wear a kilt or a tartan or whatever, to be able to you know outwardly express your heritage, it doesn't, even if you don't have a clan-specific tartan, you can still do that yeah. in other ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. This question directly relates to what you guys were just talking about. Okay. Aaron says that he has ancestors from Ireland and clans in Scotland. Okay. Uh, what tartan should he choose as he's looking through different tartans that represent both? Yes, all of them. <laughs> the uh, We have a Tartan <clears throat> of the Month club you can join. <laughs> <laughs> For the low, low price. The, the, um, uh, when it comes to uh, people who have multiple tartans in their family history or in their heritage, um, traditionally speaking, it would go through the paternal line. So whatever your father's tartan was, whatever his father's tartan was, you know, all the way back that direction. If your great, great, great grandfather on your dad's side was from Germany and he married a Scottish lady who was a Baird, um, then that would be one that you could wear and it, you know, comes down that direction. So outside of that, there's nothing saying you can't wear a tartan from your maternal line. You can wear your mother's tartan or your grandmother's tartan or whatever. Um, it really falls on you to which one you want to honor. Mm -hmm. The American, the the Scottish mindset on it, or yeah, I'll say it this way: the Scottish mindset on it would be, you pick one, and that's it. That's your tartan. So if my great grandmother was a Gordon, my great grandfather was a Gun, but I didn't like him, I'm gonna wear the Gordon tartan for my great grandmother, and that's just it. I'm that's what I'm gonna wear. Period. Um, the American mindset on this kind of thing is the excessive more is more mentality. So 
you know, and I'm guilty of this as well, I will get Stuart kilts to wear because my wife was a Stuart. I'm going to wear this one, and I'm going to wear that one, and I like this one, and I'm going to get these Universal Tartan. So there are different Tartans that I have collected and wear, you know, on a regular basis just because I want to. And you don't have to pick just one. You can pick a couple. Yeah. Um, that's assuming budget permits. Yeah. You know, if you're trying to choose... Obviously. If you're trying to choose one or the other because you have budgeted for just one kilt, then yeah, the the most traditional way to go would be the paternal line. Um, the only, but really, there's no hard and fast rule about this. There's a number of different ways you can do it. The only thing we recommend against, and this came up just a few weeks ago actually, was um, we don't recommend mixing the accessories and the tartan. So like if you're a Stuart tartan and also McDonald on some line in your family, don't wear a McDonald kilt pin on a Stuart tartan. That's just weird, um, yeah. at least from a traditionalist standpoint. Um, other than that, I could easily see having like uh, an Irish tartan that I wear for some events and then a Scottish tartan that I wear for others, um, or even seasonally, changing it up. I mean, like, wow, I like the ancient version of my family, my Scottish family tartan really well, and it looks great in the summer when I'm wearing lightweight clothes and being outside, and I really like the bright colors of my Irish tartan that would look good for when I go to the holiday party. You can mix it up that way. Yeah. Um, enjoy it all. Just don't don't mix and match the symbolic streams too much. So, enjoy to responsibly. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. As he if, lifts his scotch glass. Yeah. I don't know. If, I don't know if we helped or just made it worse for you to make a decision. But you know, don't don't yeah. worry too much about it. Yeah. There's no wrong answer. It comes down to personal preference. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Lucas. Yes, jumping back to way, 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 way earlier in the thread, uh, Cameron was asking, what tartans are you guys wearing today? Uh, I forgot to do it again. We always forget. We always forget. This is the uh, Welsh cookie crumb tartan. This is the Scruffy Wallace. Ta-da! Uh, this is uh, one of my uh, uh, semi-traditional kilts, and uh, this is the, the uh, tartan we did for him. He is the uh, former bagpiper for the Dropkick Murphys. And this is Awesome, awesome Irish tartan, especially good for this time of year where the St. Pat's coming up. Absolutely. I'm wearing the Stuart of Appen muted uh, tartan. Um, my wife is a Stuart of Appen. I really like this tartan, so it's one that I wear for her. Aww. Love you, honey. Wow, yeah, I got the cookie thing in with my wife. I know. Tartan Dude, we're, stacking we're, points yeah, today. Yeah, I might be allowed to sleep inside tonight. Too bad neither of them care to watch her videos. <laughs> Yeah, mine's too busy. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Should I do one? <clears throat> sure. Okay. All right. Um, I don't seem to have a record of who... Oh, this might be another one from John. Uh, John Charles Scott. Uh, he was saying, uh, We've commented on the use of firstborns as solely for evening wear or for formal attire in the past, he is saying. Um, does that include full firstborns and masked sporns as well? or is what really matters for it being formal is the metal cantle. Uh, growing up, he says, he was taught that fur without metal was okay for any time, but it was always silver after six. In other words, the metal was for evening, yeah, yeah, yeah. for formal wear. Does that make sense? <clears throat> yeah. Um, I would tend to agree with that. The uh, a, There's basically several different styles of sporns. There's a day sporn, which we have on now. Yep. It is a leather, full leather, sideways D-shape, these are appropriate before six, you know, casual type setting. There is a dress sporin, which is a an oval with a metal cantle or the half rim, like kind of a sideways C 
on the top of the sporn. Those are appropriate for formal events after six. Then there are what is called semi-dress sporns, which is a basically a day sporn with a fur front to the body and a leather flap on the top. Mm -hmm. um, and what he's saying is, would a semi-dress sporn, if I'm remembering the question because my memory is horrible, um, is a semi-dress sporn okay to wear during the day because it's fur? Yeah, I think he's he's trying to he's trying to confirm if if what he was taught is still true that basically fur is fur on its own is not the deciding mm. factor. I mean, can you wear fur, or is it, or is a full mask sporn too much for during the day, or could you wear yeah. a full mask sporn anytime you want? A full yeah. mask sporn. Uh, I think we've touched on this before in yeah, previous have. episodes. The uh, a full mask sporn is a you know a full head of an animal on the top as the flap of the bag. So a full mass sporin generally are very, very expensive. I mean, you're talking five, six hundred bucks for a reasonable quality one. Mm. Um, and they're, you can wear them as day wear because it does not have the metal rim on the top. That being said, the majority of the time people reserve them for dress because they're five or six hundred bucks. And yeah. you don't want to, you know, spill Guinness on your six hundred dollar sporin. So generally, you reserve them for more formal events. Um, that being said, there's nothing saying that you can't wear it to the Celtic festival um, or to the pub or whatever. It's just, it's a bit much. It can um, be. I don't know if I want to use the word ostentatious, but it's a bit, it's a know. bit much. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I've seen plenty of pictures of uh, higher clan people, um, like lairds and stuff, in um, tweeds, in with, tweeds blade, with it, yeah. and, and with a with a with a full with a full yeah. mask born or uh, a heavy fur sporn during the day. But I think that's still that's more of a specialized environment. And is it like a, are they and using it as a status symbol? That's the like yeah, a, in some I ways. can afford this because I'm wearing it. I think there is some factor of that. Yeah, I think there is some factor of that. Yeah, um, but I would yeah I'd say there's nothing wrong with having fur during the day. Nope. Um, but uh, just don't let it overpower the rest of the outfit. Um, there is conversely now there is a trend towards uh, bronze and brass colored uh, cantle and copper colored uh, cantles on dress sporns, and I have occasionally seen people wearing um, a not silver uh, dress sporn with a tweed outfit for the day. And because it's a because it's a toned down kind of metal, I think the perception is that it's uh, okay. It gives you more of that uh, country estate Lord of the Manor kind of look that Downton Abbey effect again. Um, so things kind of flux there's there's some hard rules and there's always some crossover in the middle yeah so i it's, i wouldn't i don't know if i would necessarily do it but um i like it and i don't like the the yeah i know what you're talking about we've seen yeah. a few uh like copper or bronzed like antiqued bronzed yeah uh cantles or metal pieces on it um on sporns with tweed and it's the traditional side of me is shuddering from someone wearing <laughs> a dress sporin with a tweed jacket or during the day. Yeah. But the contemporary side of me is like, yeah, but it kind of works. Yeah. So it's dude's cool. rocking it. Yeah. It's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it, it's going to come down to personal preference and taste it on it. It always does. But it's, you know, do you like it? If you like it, no one is going to string you up for wanting to wear a copper mm -hmm. kettle sporn yeah. during the day. But, uh, but yeah, you could wear fur. I would say fur is fine any time of day. Yeah. Um, and a nice semi-dress sporn is actually a really easy way to dress up an outfit just enough. You know, I have a I have a skunk pelt semi-dress, and I get a lot of compliments on it because it's it's just a little bit different, a little bit fancy. Um, you know, but it's not too much. So, yeah. Hopefully that helps.
Mr. Lucas. Yes, that is <clears throat> that is a really cool Sporin, Eric. Thank you. The skunk Thank pelt. You. I Def know where you can get one just like it. Definitely some Sporin envy there. <laughs> um, there was a question here from Don, who, going back in the thread here, I did answer him via the chat here, but I wanted you guys to address it as well. Uh, Don's asking us, do we resize old kilts? He has some uh, an old army kilt that he would like to have resized. It's in good shape, he says, other than the size. No. The, uh, <laughs> in a word, no. Um, the, basically, we only adjust kilts that we have made. Um, we've opened up kilts and kind you know, back in the day when we did adjust kilts on occasion, we've opened up kilts and kind of had to reconstruct and did not account for the amount of labor that was going to be involved. So we kind of just said, as a, as a company policy, no, we are not adjusting kilts that we have not made because this way we know exactly what we are getting into. Um, different kilt manufacturers make kilts different ways. There's, you know, a hundred different ways to skin a cat. So without knowing everything that goes into it, it's just easier for us to just kind of draw a hard line under it and say, nope, if we made it, yes. If we didn't, unfortunately not. And to some extent, it also comes down to how much of an adjustment you're talking about. Just in the, in the general sense, yeah. Um, you may not be happy with how the kilt looks on you, even if you adjust it. Um, if it has to be major surgery and the buckles are being moved to the point where like half of your under apron is showing, uh, it uh, you may not be happy with the result. Uh, we usually find that people are, are much more better off. Um, yeah, if, it, if you're sentimentally attached to it, this doesn't work. But basically, selling a kilt or gifting it to someone, um, or heck, even framing it and hanging on a wall. Um, as a memento, yeah. but retiring it in one way or another. Uh, if you sell it, you can put that, you know, put the funds from it towards a new kilt. But get one that is shaped to your current body shape and properly done for you, so that you will look your best. It's uh, I know budget can sometimes be a factor in this kind of thing, yeah. but um, moving buckles is something that we sometimes do for kilts that we have made, and a couple of inches resizing is not that big a deal. It won't affect your appearance too too much, but uh, but. You get into a slippery slope sometimes with readjusting a kilt where it just starts to look odd. Yeah. So, harsh. Especially when it gets into major reconstruction. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can think of one time where a, uh, uh, a guy had a custom woven tartan. I think it was Arizona mm. State tartan, if I'm, so my memory really, serves. He was desperate to preserve it because it's... <clears throat> and he was like, well, yeah. I said, look, it's going to be a lot of money. We have to literally tear the entire thing apart. And then in those tatters remake the entire kilt and we had to take out a bunch of pleats and do a bunch Oof. of things and like we quoted him a, like a good chunk of change almost as much as a new kilt and he said well it was a custom woven kilt so it's still cheaper than yeah, having more fabric rewoven woven and redoing it yeah so yeah. it's but most times it's just it's not financially in the cars yeah so that's that's the advice let's know if we can help some other way maybe sure lucas very unique cultural question here from okay. Kirk. And Kirk is asking us... Is this the Kirk I know? It is the Kirk oh, you know. hi, Kirk. <laughs> scotch question. What is the acceptable amount of scotch to pour for a guest? Oh, is it a... cheap scotch or good scotch? <laughs> not in day is it? How, not how indicated. How guest are they? Yeah, how, many, is it, how long have they been in your house? Is it drunk <laughs> uncle? Can, or is it a, a good friend who you're trying to impress who can appreciate the scotch? <laughs> there are a lot of variables here, Kirk. Mm. 
If it was Kirk Kinnaman coming over to my house, I would pour cheap scotch and not that much of it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> ow. <laughs> um, That's a good question. I mean, standard three-finger dram? Or, the, I mean, what's what the... I would do is, uh, as much as I am pouring for myself, would be okay. a good rule of thumb. Okay, okay, um, sure, sure. I would offer, you know, I have several different scotches um, that I've collected and I don't really like, which is begs the question why did I collect them um, so across my bar so yeah so I so I can feed here and drink you know have Kirk drink them when it comes over um, <laughs> but I'll you know basically say okay what do you want and then however much I'm drinking I will pour about the same as that um, just a normal glass um, generally you don't want your guests sloppy drunk especially if they have to drive yeah. home yeah um, true. so true that but yeah I mean yeah it's kind of it's kind of like uh, if you're out on a date with somebody I guess the polite thing would be is like, well, what are you ordering? And if they're ordering something that costs $10, then you don't go over $10. So, yeah, you kind of, kind of keep it on a par, keep it equal. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It also depends on, I'll say this, if it's um, to the date thing, it's <clears throat> you want to make sure that, you know, if you're out with a girl and she weighs 120 pounds and you weigh 250 pounds, you're not pouring the same amount. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You want to make sure it's, you know, on par. And, you know, within the bounds of good taste and, you know, not think, being sloppy. And I would also say that um, it may depend sometimes on how experienced the guest is with scotch. You may want, you know, if you do not know what this is. Fair. Then let me give you just a small sample of it so that, you know, A, they, spit it out. they aren't overwhelmed by it. Yeah, and you're not wasting scotch, you know, or or giving them this gob full of stuff that they really hate and they feel like they have to drink it. Yeah, they backwash and tell you to pour it back in the bottle. Yeah, so. yeah, well, some of my some of my booze, it wouldn't matter, but... <laughs> Fair. It might give that a homey touch. Anyway, I'm tired, so I'm digressing. I apologize. It's the barley floating around in there. Yeah, hey, yes, no, yes, hey, yes, no yes, 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 yes. Mountain Dew. Um, okay, let's see. Here's another techie question. Uh, Edward is asking us, uh, how do you personally, I'm assuming he means you, choose your hose color? Do you match the kilt? Do you match a jacket or a tie? Or do you just go in a different direction just for the heck of it? Um, do essentially do the tie and the flashes have to be the same color? What's how do you do your color scheme starting with the hose? Sure. Um, for me personally, uh, I like to do I like to draw out minor colors in the tartan. Um, if I'm, for instance, today I'm wearing the the Stewart of Appen uh, muted tartan. So for the sweater, it has this nice light blue stripe in here. For the sweater. I could have worn a dark green sweater or a dark red sweater. And A, you have to make sure in that instance that the colors are a very close match. Um, and B, you're gonna have a lot of that color going on. Mm -hmm. um, for this one, I picked you know a light blue sweater to kind of pull out, draw out that the light blue stripe in it, you know, draw it out to your eye. And then I'll match my hose to the same thing that I'm wearing up top. Um, if I don't have a hose color, to match what I'm wearing up top, I'll match the hose to one of the colors that I'm wearing in my kilt. Mm -hmm. um, a good rule of thumb for the flashes is either A, tonally, you know, wear it, you know, for another minor color in the kilt or wear another color in the kilt to kind of draw your eye to that color. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, whatever I wear for my flashes, I'll wear with a necktie if I'm wearing a necktie that day. Okay. It doesn't, you don't have to do it, but it just looks smart. Um, it looks like you're well, co you've well coordinated the outfit and didn't get dressed in the dark. Um, mm -hmm. 
So that's generally how I do it. I think going with the accent colors is a much safer bet because if you go with like a base color, like a field color, like the red in that, you could wind up looking really overwhelming. Yeah. You know, you can, or, or just, you know, really just almost monochrome is it, you know what I mean? So I think, I think, yeah, mm -hmm. the accent colors is, is the way to go. And if you don't nail the color match, um, it's gonna look odd. Yeah. It's gonna look yeah, just that's like. True. That's true. Yeah. But if it's, if it's just one accent stripe that you're trying to match with the other accessories, it's going to be a lot more forgivable. Yes. And of, you can be distance, a little bit further because, off. Yeah, yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah, like your, your flashes don't have to be the exact same red as your tie sometimes. Right. Because they're separated by the rest of your body. So, yep. Yeah. Absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, it's, a, it's an instinct thing. Um, if you are not sure about the hose, you can always go with a gray or black or something like that. Yeah. You know, or, Charcoal. Yeah. Or cream. Bias against cream hose. Can you tell? But uh, yeah, I think yeah, go for the go for the accent stripe. Yeah, yeah, cool. Mr. Lucas. All right, a culture question <coughs> and then a technical question. Huh? Um, let's see here. Gary is asking you both what would be the first places you would want to visit on a trip going to Scotland. Okay. The pub. Uh... If I'm honest. <laughs> Okay. You land in the plane, you're tired, you just want to have a nice pint. The very first, the very first thing you want to visit. Okay. In that case, you might as well say the restroom. You get off the plane, you want to go to the back. <laughs> Come on, man. Come on. How about a, a, a site? A, a, site. a cultural on. significance. Fine. Yes. Fine. Um, I don't know. I've been to Scotland several times, and I've done the tourist thing, and I've done the non-tourist thing. Um, right. My right. favorite, the most, the most memorable experience I had in Scotland was we stayed in Aberfoyle at a B&B uh, &B kind of thing, and about twenty minutes away, between two mountain ridges, effectively, um, was a windy road. There was a little rest stop with literally just like picnic benches, just mm -hmm. a parking lot and some picnic benches. Okay. And then on the other side was this town called Calendar. Um, and when we were driving back from Calendar, um, it literally, we just like, okay, we're just gonna rest for a little bit, kind of watch the sunset over the mountains. Um, and it was already going down. So by the time we got there parked, there was no cars on the road, no noise. The mountains kind of insulated the area. Yeah. And when, it, when the sun went down, literally you, you could barely see things and it was so dead quiet you could hear your heart beating in your ears nice that is one of the first places i would want to go is somewhere as like calming and serene as that yep i've done the castle thing i've done the tourist thing i've done the you know the where the locals drink and eat kind of thing mm -hmm. so that's the the one memory that really sticks out is just this dead quiet um, and, you know, beauty of the sun going down over the mountains in Scotland. Mm -hmm. Yep. Top that. Um, I'm, I'm not going to try because I think, <laughs> I think the point, I think you're raising the point that basically there's, there's two or three different kinds of experiences you can have when you travel anywhere, but especially Scotland. Um, and you want to try and get all of them. Yeah. You, you want know, a flavor, you want, that, you want the whole flavor. Yeah. Yeah. You want the big history and you want the little history and you want the, the, the personal experience with the people, you know, and you want or the, the land. and you want the landscape. Yeah. yeah so um so for pure emotional impact i would like to 
I'd have to go in the off-season if there is an off-season. I doubt there is an off-season. But to avoid as many people as possible. Um, I would love to watch a sunset over Culloden Moor. There is an off-season. It's called okay. January. Okay, I would totally do that. Just That's for the sake of... Just for the... Just for that sake of being there for that. Um, and I want to go to Scottar Bray, which in some ways you could say is not strictly Scotland proper, but uh, one of the oldest, oldest human <coughs> habitations ever discovered. Is that in the Orkneys? Or? Yeah, it's in the Orkneys. Yeah. So I would, I would absolutely love to see that. Um, and yeah, basically other than that, it'd be about finding people. Yeah. You know, um, well, there is Gold Brothers, of course. The, uh, the, the, I think the key to it is, I'm just not even acknowledging <laughs> <laughs> the key to it is, I don't speak negatively about competitors. Jolly good. Um, okay. Uh, the key to it is finding locals, whether that's in the pub, like literally, go, yeah. if you're staying in a hotel, go down and estimate or D, where do you go to drink? Where's the best local watering hole? Where's the best local bar? Not, you know, walking up and down the Royal Mile, though there's nothing wrong with that, but check out where the locals go. If you want a true, authentic experience, you don't want the watered-down, you know, McDonald's version of Scotland. You want real haggis. You want real neeps and tatties. You want real bangers and mash in Ireland. It's yeah. You want to have an authentic experience. When we were in Ireland, we literally said, okay, where's the, where's the best place to go to hear session mu music in County Clare? Um, and we would go there and just sit in a pub and listen, you know, musicians filed in. There was a fire, you know, a peat brick fire. Musicians just filed in. Legit. We had pints of Guinness on the table. And I remember Kelly literally put her camcorder on the table with a pint of Guinness sitting there and just videotaped an hour and a half of session music. That was it. And that was an authentic experience yeah. versus taking a guided tour of a particular castle. There's knowledge there, and there's history there, and that's fun as well. Yeah. But it's not how people are living today. Mm -hmm. So it's a different angle on the culture. I'm, I'm, I'm more of a history nut than you are, so I have a slightly different perspective. Um, uh, I, did, I did think of one other. I would really like to climb up Arthur's Seat, actually. You agree with that one, Lucas? Yeah, yeah. I, I've been to Edinburgh a couple times, yeah. and I haven't definitely regretted that. I really <laughs> want to do that. I really want to do that. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, I think... Um, Getting a sense for the real, the real life going on there, and uh, feeling the the culture that's just seeping into the everyday is important. I do think going to historic sites is is valuable. Um, if you can do it in as quiet a way as possible, avoiding tour groups is great. If you talk to docents or tour guides, be incredibly respectful and friendly with them. They are they're there to educate, and so often they are answering the same questions over and over again. Um, or they're dealing with people who are just not really into it. They're just like, oh, this is the next stop on the tour. If you show interest, you will get better information from them and you can have a richer experience at the historic site. Yeah. Yeah, speaking as one who has been an interpreter. So um, there's, there's a lot to be said for that too. Is, uh, and, and look for historic things and cultural things that are off the beaten path. And off season. And off season helps yeah. a lot. Yeah. A lot of times in, uh, it's gonna be cold. You're gonna worry a little bit about yeah. weather conditions, but Whenever, you know, there's a, there's a trade show in the UK in January. And when I go to Scotland, it's generally in January. I lump in the trade show to the trip, but we've gone to Inverness. We've gone to Fort William. We've gone to, you know, Glasgow, Edinburgh. Like, we've mm. visited different areas. We've been to Culloden um, and seen different things in January. And there's a lot less people there, yeah. especially at Culloden. I remember there was probably at this beautiful historical site, 
25 people we saw while circling the entire battlefield yeah. when we were there. Yeah. And then we went to the uh, the Clava Cairns, which is 20 minutes or so from Clodden, from Clodden Battlefield. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Hiding there spot. was no one there. Zero. So, you know, Kelly and I went into the huge rock mound with the, with the walkway into it and that kind of stuff. It was a really cool experience having no one there to interrupt you just kind of, you know, communing with nature, as it were. Yeah. Um, just yeah. kind of hanging out and taking it all in. And the ghosts. Yes. Yep. Yeah. E- eerily enough, our friend Chris here mentions that he would like to go ghost hunting in Scotland. Oh, yeah. Um, what's the... Uh... What's the bridge? Sterling there's Bridge. There's a I think Sterling see there's no not Sterling Bridge. There's a there's a bridge in Edinburgh and I can't remember the name of it, but uh, it's famously haunted. Um, okay. the and uh, oh yeah. Tower Bridge or no. No, 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 no. That's, 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 that's yeah. London. Um anyway, they had, there's all these eighteenth century structures that were built inside under the arches, eighteenth and nineteenth century structures, and it's just it's super creepy cool. Um, oh all the uh, the the tunnels underneath Edinburgh. Yep. Um, the closes. Yep. And, the closes. That's it. Yeah, yeah, that's the term I was looking for. Thank you. Yeah, it's not yeah, a bridge. Closes. It's literally like underneath the streets. Yeah, but it used to be a bridge. That's the point. It was, okay. it, it was the reason the closes exist was because of it. Boy, this is a tangent. Thanks for your patience, everybody. Um, but yeah, Arthur's Seat is also good for ghosts, too. That's where they found those uh, those weird voodoo dollies. Those those little miniature bodies there. Yeah. As yeah. you do. <laughs> Take me with you. We'll do it up. <laughs> Next one. Sure. Okay. Um, we had a question. He thought you were talking to him. <laughs> Go ahead, Lucas. We had a question from Chuck. And Chuck is saying, sorry, I know you've covered this before, but how do you achieve the hourglass or flared apron look if your waist is bigger than your hip measurement? You don't taper much. There, it's yeah, you're literally... Not, you're not going to get the shoulder blade to waistline <clears throat> to flare hourglass shape as well um but wearing the kilt a little higher is the first piece of advice i would offer that's basically that's what's gonna yeah, help cinch the most. it down <laughs> come so on so that you can't no. breathe no. no but seriously we, some guys if they have a belly they feel like they have they, they want to wear the kilt lower more like pants because it feels yeah, weird yeah. to them but going up above like we've always said the upper on the upper slope of the egg as we say um it's gonna sit better and it's gonna look better because you're getting more of a 50-50 bisection of your torso. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Please correct it's, me if I'm wrong. No, it's generally for for someone whose waist is bigger than their rear end, um, you're not going to have an hourglass shape. It's just not. Um, it's not physically possible with you. You're more of, and this isn't meant to sound insulting, we use this analogy all the time, think of yourself kind of as an egg shape. And you want to wear, you can still look very good in a kilt, even if you are egg-shaped. Yeah. If you wear a kilt around the widest part of the egg or just above the widest part of the egg, which is generally around in line with your belly button or just a little bit higher, um, it's going to hang down flat from there. If you wear the kilt under your belly, what ends up happening is your belly kind of pushes it down in the front and it you know pulls up in the back. So it's more of a angular thing where it's you know maybe down to the bottom of the, your knee in the front but maybe up to the you know mid thigh or mid hamstring in the back of your leg, um, so it kind of looks a little odd. Um, if you wear it, you know, in complete circle around the center of your body, it's going to hang flat in the front and in the back, and it'll be a nicer appearance on a larger gent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? What, I think like, so. I the think visuals so. I'm given. Yeah, I think that's okay. pretty much it. Yeah. 
Very good. Mr. Eric. Okay. Um, let's see. Stephen Murphy Powers uh, had a couple of questions. Um, he was wondering what type of kilt do we prefer to wear on a regular basis? Is the first question. Just sure. like on the daily, what's our preference? Um, I'm assuming he means whether like a five yard or eight five yard. Five yard, eight yard, semi trad, yeah. casual, whatever. Um, it depends on the mood I'm in. It depends on if my back is hurting. It depends on you know, the temperature outside. Uh, if it's just a hot summer day and I'm going to be running around, I'll put on a five yard wool kilt because it's a little bit less cloth. Um, although there's not really much wrong with an eight yard wool kilt in the same way. It's not going to be that much warmer. Um, it's really just personal preference. I will, I have 40 something kilts in my closet. So when I get up in the morning, generally what I'll do is kind of figure out what shirt I want to wear. And then from there, pick a kilt in a, or a tartan that'll match with the shirt. And I'll kind of go that direction mm -hmm. just because I kind of have the luxury to do that with that many kilts. Um, but that's how I would do it. Yeah. Um, my collection is all over the map. Um, I, I buy them based on just what tartan I like, and I buy them based on... Um, budget at the time. Budget at the time. A lot of time, it's just the budget at the time. Now, I have an advantage of working here again. I can do payments on installments and things like that. Um, but I don't have one particular style that I prefer over the others. Um, I will definitely veer towards lighter in the summer and heavier in the winter. But, uh, yeah, it's really just... Um, I like the variety. I like to be, being able to choose for different circumstances each day. So it's hard for me to nail it down. If I had to ch recommend someone to get one kilt uh, because they're only going to get one kilt and they wanted to keep it reasonable and balanced, then I usually default to telling people to get the five yard. You know, and my five yards are a couple of my favorite ones because they're just they're just kind of just right in terms of the weight, the weight to bulkiness ratio. They're good all year round, and um, but it's wool, so you get the full effect of the tartan looking great. Yeah. You the know. other thing I would say is. Um, the other angle on the advice, not talking, trying to talk people into something more expensive, but the thing I've said in the store is buy the best kilt you can afford. If you're going to yeah. buy one, yeah. buy the best one you can afford because it's, it's not often you look back at a purchase and say, shoot, I should have bought the cheaper one. But I can think of multiple times where I've looked back and go, darn it, I should have bought the nicer one. Mm. So think of it that way and you're going to be able in an eight yard kilt to wear it to fancier occasions um, because you will have a little bit more, you know, narrower pleats, deeper pleats, that kind of thing. Although there's nothing wrong with a five yard. So within your budget, decide what is, you know, the best kilt you can afford and yeah. go start there and move with that. Mm -hmm. And then pick your tartan based on those options. Whether that's, you know, our casual kilt and you say, look, I don't have a lot of money. I'm a college student or I have loans or whatever. Then fine. If the casual kilt is the nicest one you can afford, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Get that one. Yeah. Don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Yes. Yeah. Mr. Lucas. Yes. A very, very important question uh -oh. from Steve. He's asking, how does he convince his wife that he needs a new kill? He has his eye on <laughs> Rose Red Muted, and she has her eye on the credit card. <clears throat> I like how he put that. Uh, yeah. That was, well, that was well played. Um couple ways um save up for it um yeah put aside 20 bucks 40 bucks out of every paycheck if you can and just kind of start your own kilt fund um start uh telling your wife look if i pack lunches for the next two months 
I'm going to have saved up $300 or $200 or whatever, and I want to put that towards a new kilt. Um, explain to her that you can do half down on the kilt, half when it's finished, so you can spread the payments out. There's a lot of little ways. When you want something, you figure out the way to do it. Um, worst case scenario, bribery. <laughs> Tell her, if you get this kilt, then she gets a kitty, or she gets a new purse, or whatever, and think of something that's, you know, commiserate price-wise, and kind of go that direction, or, you know, convince her that, look, this is something that means something to me that I want to wear more often. If I want to wear a kilt twice a week, and I only have one, I'm wearing the same kilt all the time, we're going to have to clean it more. There's going to be, you know, more involved in that. So there's a you know, many different ways to kind of... And what would the neighbors think? What would oh, the neighbors think? Goodness exactly. gracious, the same tartan twice well, in a week? Well, you oh. wear, you only wear a red kilt once, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> the, <clears throat> but it's, yeah, it's you You can kind of angle it different ways, but the the base of it is make sure she understands what it means to you. Hmm. If, it's, if it's something that has cultural and heritage significance to you and it makes you feel part of your, you know, expressing your heritage is something you want to do, let her know that there are other things that you could give up in order to be able to do this and make sure she understands. And if she's, you know, a loving wife and understands, you know, that it's not just a 90-10 relationship and it's 50-50, she's going to say, okay, this means something to him. I want him to be happy. If this is going to make him happy, then we'll figure out a way to make it work. That sounds more like an argument for your first time kilt than a second or third kilt. Like if you have a, if you already have one, Fair. I think that's a harder argument to make. Way to shoot down my no, brilliantly it's a, it's, crafted no, argument. No, I think it's a good argument. I think it's, and I think it's good advice for anybody who's trying to, to deal right. with that kind of thing. And I actually had a question in the in the bank here about uh, other forms of spousal disapproval. But the, um, uh, but if it's your second or third kilt, then I think it gets down to the more the economics of. Yeah, saving it up, making sure she realizes it's not going to be an impact on the budget. Um, you're trying to be patient about it um, and kind of ease her into the idea as you ease into having the money for it so that basically she isn't like expecting like a huge slam, you know, to the yeah. to, to, to the budget because you're, you're doing it like today. Um, it is worth noting uh, the, men the option that Rocky mentioned about uh, splitting the cost. That's something we do. Um, we do it with phone-in orders, not online, and it's something that uh, I'm not sure if other kilt makers do, but you can ask them. Yeah. You know, and I do find that does help. I find it helps if you can do, you know, half down, you know, or yeah. Yeah, but if you're if you're trying to introduce it as something that you're wearing on a regular basis, and now I'll say this. Yeah, you're gonna get use has, out of it. Yeah, if yeah. he has a kilt that he's worn once in a year. He pulls it out on, on St. Patrick's Day and puts it away and forgets about it for a year. I can understand why That's she would be upset. Hard to make an argument yes, for another one. Yes, agreed. Yeah. But if you wear it once or twice a month and she's okay with you wearing your kilt, if you're showing her that, look, it's not just going to sit in the closet and collect dust. I'm going to actually wear it. Mm -hmm. It's harder to argue against that, even from a financial standpoint, and just saying, look, yeah. it costs the same as a suit. I'm not going to buy another suit. I want to buy another kilt. Yeah, that's a good point. And a kilt, a kilt will last you longer than a lot of things like a pair of jeans, too. Yeah. So like if it was, if you're a lifestyler, then you you can rationalize the investment because you're buying a quality garment. Yeah. You know that's you're gonna get more use out of. So. Agreed. Uh, but then again, bribery. Yeah. Never underestimate the power of bribery. Chocolates, flowers, 
find the credit card bill before it gets to her. <laughs> I would never suggest that. Never. never. Not in a million years. I would never suggest the thing I just said. No. Nope. Nope. Another one, Lucas, or shall I do one? Um, no. Steve okay. Steve mentioned his wife does want a puppy, so. Oh. Yeah. Hey, puppies if, are awesome. And if but... you don't mind having a puppy, maybe that's a trade you want to make. Maybe, maybe if she really, really wants the puppy, and she doesn't know that you kind of want the puppy as well, maybe you try to work two kilts or a kilt and a sporin for a puppy. <laughs> and enough extra yards Angela. to make a little tartan sweater for the dog. Yeah, email me. I'll give yeah. you the negotiating tactics. Make sure you're <laughs> comfortable walking away from the table. It's, no. Yeah, no one to hold them. No one to hold them. Yeah. Okay. Um, just quickly following up, uh, Steve's second question, Stephen. Um, you want to know what we thought about baseball caps with kilts, obviously for casual occasions. Sure. If it's casual and you're, if I'm wearing a, an Argyle jacket and vest and kilt hose and ghillie brogues, then no, a baseball cap is going to look odd. Just like anything else, context. Yeah, be saying like a cookout or a ball uh, game, trip I was to getting the zoo, there. yeah. I was getting there. Yeah. Um, Just but if you're, examples. I know, but if you're going to wear it, to a ball game or to the zoo or just a cookout, then yes, a ball cap will be fine. It's appropriate headwear for the occasion. If you're going to be outside in the summer and it's going to be sunny and you don't want to wear sunglasses, put on a hat. Um, and that's fine. It's You want a hat that will look okay with the kilt. I wouldn't you know, rock a cowboy hat with it, but you know, a flat cap or a baseball cap with a kilt and a casual style shirt and a pair of sneakers and crew socks, mm -hmm. in my estimation, is fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, and uh, to that, I personally would rather see you in a flat cap than a ball cap, um, but that's just me. And uh, we did have, uh, someone had asked us about cool weather uh, options for flat caps, and I think uh, our recommendation was Hannah. Actually has some made out of linen. Does that sound right? Yeah, there's a lot of different like, uh, flat cap companies that'll make summer yeah. wear flat caps. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't have to be the ventilated Kangol thing. You can actually get a... Sorry, yeah. guy, I didn't mean to run over your... No, comment. it's... Traditionally, they're made from wool, um, and then the more contemporary ones, like, you know, Samuel L. Jackson, you know, in a, in a flat cap kind of thing, are going to be like the mesh material. Yeah. Um, but there is... There, or there are linen flat caps as well, mm -hmm. um, and whether it's Hannah Hats or another brand, there's a lot of companies that will make summer flat caps. There's a lot of golfing apparel yeah. type companies that'll make them yeah. um, because golfers love them. Um, so yeah, I'd say a linen or a cotton flat cap would be the way to go. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they're going to be either cream or off-white color. You can get them in black generally, but then you're just, you know, you're asking yeah. for the sun to beat down on your head. Yeah. So I don't know how much you're actually saving heat-wise. Yeah. But uh, yeah, linen or cotton. Yeah. Or yeah, do the ball cap. Yep. Enjoy the cookout. Lucas? Yes. This question we've definitely had before. Okay. Definitely helps to go over it again for folks just getting started. Sure. Sporin suspenders versus sporin chains. And sure. not strap, but suspenders. Hangers. Correct. Sporin hangers. hangers. Yeah. Okay. okay. Sporin hangers or sporin suspenders, as they're also known, are basically leather fobs. Think of like if you have a, a biker wallet with the chain that attaches has a little leather fob that goes over to your belt and then snaps at the bottom to keep it attached to your belt. Mm -hmm. Sporn hangers effectively do the same thing, but you hang them from the front of your uh, from the front of your belt, and then they have little clips on the bottom, and the little clip 
clips onto the back of the D-rings on the back of the sporin. So you have one on either side of the buckle, and then the sporin hangs down, you know, right in the center of the front of the kilt. The, uh, traditionally, a sporin chain is worn, but for guys with a bit of a belly, um, the sporin hangers, the sporin chain, excuse me, can kind of cut in and underline the belly when it's worn below. Uh, so the sporin hangers allow you to negate the use of the sporin chain altogether, and then the, the sporin itself just hangs from the belt in the front. Therefore, you don't have the chain underlining the belly. Therefore, it's a nicer, flatter, cleaner appearance mm -hmm. on the front of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, but in terms of one over the other, they have they each have advantages and disadvantages. And uh, I would say it kind of depends on the aesthetics as well as your practical application. Uh, Rocky mentioned the main practical reason that a lot of guys like them um, the on the opposite end of the spectrum, some guys like to look them because they look more modern. They look more technical in a way than a sporn strap or a sporn chain does. Yeah, they look more tactical. Um, all joking aside, um, and yet I personally don't find them as tactical because they're not as flexible to use as a sporn chain, where I can I can take it off in a snap if I want to just by unhooking one of the one of the the clips, um, or I can spin it around to the side if I need to have my sporn out of the way. You can't really do that with uh, sporn hangers. Um, the best use I've had for a sporn hanger is to carry my keys on it on the side of my belt. Um, now, if you don't want to have the extra chain, or if you want to, you're you're using it with a an alternative kind of a kilt, like a utility kilt or something, and you want to have your sporn hang directly from your main belt, um, then sure, works fine. Um, I don't find it as pleasing aesthetically, um, but I can see it as a as a kind of a casual tactical kind of a look as well as an advantage if you're uh, not wanting the chain digging into you for whatever reason. So, Agreed. Yeah, they're cheap, so you can getting a pair to, to test it and experiment with it is easy, and they're not they're not really expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Cool. All right. Mr. Eric? Sure. Uh, let's see. If somebody had asked us exactly what tartan tweeds are, but we kind of discussed that. Um, you want to go over it again? Yeah. Okay. Um... What is the best timing for me to get a kilt for a wedding outfit? Getting married, how much time do I need to allow for a wedding? Generally, uh, it depends on the manufacturer. Um, some companies have a six, seven week turnaround. Some companies have a two year turnaround. It depends on you know the individual company you're ordering from. Um, generally for us, we sit on the website we quote six to 10 weeks. The problems, here's, here's the problem areas. One, is the tartan that you are looking for only woven by one mill? Mm. If it is, then you are at that mill's mercy to have it in stock and readily available. Mm. So if it's, you know, Ramsey Blue Ancient and it's the Lockheron version is the only one that you like and Lockheron happens to be out of stock and they're not gonna have more in for 12 weeks, that's for the cloth and then there's another few weeks to actually make up the kilt. So it could be 16 plus weeks until the outfit will be finished. If there's something else that needs to be custom, like your jacket and vest, if you're ordering a tweed jacket and vest, or if you're a super athletic guy with really broad shoulders and a tiny waist, and you wanna order a Prince Charlie, but it has to be a fully made to measure garment, then that's gonna be you know about eight or 10 weeks to have the jacket and vest made and finished. So. Overall, this is a long-winded way to, to say 
generally allow about three months. Um, we can generally turn things around in less than three months, but if it's for a wedding or something with a very firm date, then allow at least three months, if not four months, yeah. just to be safe. And that way, if there's any issues with the cloth being in stock or with anything else, we have the ability to kind of get around any hiccups. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that it's very likely that you'll find sometimes that you're actually doing this even further ahead than that because your color choices and your options are also being dictated to some degree by what the bride wants. And a lot of the stuff that she needs to coordinate, like the dress or decoration and stuff, that has to happen a lot sooner. So you could be looking at getting your dream outfit for your wedding a year ahead of the, of the, uh, the wedding itself. Um, that gets into sometimes issues of if, you, if your size might change which, you know, sometimes happens. But, yeah, if uh, you gain or lose weight, you want to make yeah. sure that you don't order a custom-made kilt and then lose 50 pounds. Um, congratulations, you're skinnier, and now your kilt won't fit. Um, so you want to make sure that whatever, you know, when you order the kilt, you maintain. Um, but Eric brings up a good point about color matching. The other thing you can do is order swatches yep. at the same time you're ordering the kilt, and then give the swatches to her to color match for the flowers or color match for the gowns or the mm -hmm. sashes or whatever. Um, and then that way she'll have something to actually tangible to take with her and you can put your kilt on order at the same time. Yeah, it's basically best to take it in stages, you know, so that you have, so you're not stressed out when you get close to the wedding day. Yeah, you're going to have, you're going to have a lot of things to stress out about. So make sure that this isn't one of them and give yourself plenty of time to get it done. That way, if there are any hiccups, you have a chance to get around them versus being rushed and at the last minute not being able to get what you need because somebody's out of stock or something. Yep. Yep. True that. What do you carry in your what sporn? What do you carry in your sporn? I, I, you personally. The finest single malt. Um, <laughs> no. Um, it's actually like a camelback. Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, camel pack, yes. yeah it's like Yes, who's up to the tip of the... Yeah. There you go. Um, the uh, carrying your sporn, anything you'd have in your pockets. And kilts don't traditionally have pockets. So keys, wallet, your smokes, your phone, whatever you need to have with you on your person. Yeah. Carry in your sporn. Yeah, don't worry about it too much. Um, if you want to look less bulky for an evening occasion, you, maybe you leave the multi-tool at home when you're going out to the, the fancy opera, you know, yeah. but, uh, you know, less weight, less weight in a sporn is sometimes good if, um, <clears throat> uh, if you're worried about fatigue factor during a long event. Yeah. You know what I mean? The, the other thing I found, um, I had a bad back, have arthritis and stuff. Mm. And the more stuff I put in my sporn the more my back would hurt by the end of the day. Hmm. So a lot of times when I'm in the shop just running around, I'll actually leave my sporn at my desk because if I keep my sporn on the entire day and if I have a lot of stuff in my sporn, it'll eventually start, you know, kind of weighing down at my lower back. Okay. So it's something to consider. Okay. Cool. All right. Mr. Lucas, while he's looking for one, why don't you sure. Do yeah, I was about to say, do you have one? Yeah. Very quick, very <coughs> quick question. Okay. Do you find it wrong to wear 
cotton sweaters with your wool kilt. I am wearing a cotton no. sweater with my wool kilt, so no, I do not. Perfectly illustrated. Well Absolutely. Well Ta-da! <laughs> it's almost like I was prepared. Um, no, <laughs> cotton uh, mixing materials like cotton versus wool. Um, no, I wouldn't see any problem with that. I'm not a huge sweater guy. I just happen to like this exact style of sweater. Um, so I got this one in a couple different colors. Um, I like the breathability of it because I generally get warm as I'm you know, running around. Um, so I like cotton for a breathability aspect, but yeah, I see no problem with cotton sweaters. Yeah, it's basically, I wear sweater vests on a regular basis, so <coughs> don't worry about that. It's, it's, it comes down to that color matching thing more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any more from you, Lucas? Our we friend... Got, we got time for a couple more. Our our friend Chris is making a comment to never run with a heavy sporin. Ah, uh, yes. Turn it to the side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, turn it to the side. When you're... You will make the mistake of running with a sporin or jumping off of something with a sporin <laughs> yep. one time. Yep. You will bring yourself to your knees and you will never make that mistake again. It will be a learning moment. <laughs> yeah. The more you know. Yeah. <laughs> the more you know. Yes. Um, uh, Chris is asking when I'm going to play the bagpipes on a broadcast, but... I think it's that pretty would, small room. That would that would yeah. blow out all the mics. Some yeah. collateral damage in here. <coughs> I, I can only so. say that um, as things expand, as things progress, especially this year, because we are actually involved in a building project, um, there's going to be more cultural stuff happening, and uh, with any luck, that will include some musical performances and things like that. So in the next year or so, we're going to see a lot of changes in terms of what we're capable of doing here. So yeah, we're going to redo the opening to the show. I'm actually going to play the kazoo. A very, yeah. very traditional Scottish instrument, yep. and it's going to yep. be spectacular. Yep. Awesome. It's going to rock. No. Super basic question. Um, you don't have a kilt yet. You've never owned a kilt. You want to get a kilt. Where the heck do you start? What is the very first thing you should do once you suddenly get the idea, oh, I think I might wear a kilt? How do you really get started in all this rationally? Sure. Um, two things. Um, one, decide where you want to wear it. They're kind of connected. Decide where you want to wear it. If you're going to wear it out casually to the mall, to the store, just as a lifestyle kind of thing, that's going to be a different decision than if you're going to wear it for your wedding and dressier functions as well as to the mall or Celtic festival or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, two, decide what type of tartan or non-tartan you want. Do you want to do a solid color utility one or do you want to do a tartan kilt? If you do want to do a tartan kilt, do you have family lineage that you want to kind of tie into? Do you want to have a, is there a district that you want to, you know, represent? Are there particular colors that you want your kilt to be because red's your favorite color and you want to do a red kilt? Um, So you have to kind of mull all these ideas around in your head and kind of boil it down and then you'll have a little bit of inkling on okay i want to wear my family tartan and i'm going to just wear it casually so maybe i'll look at a casual type kilt or i want to wear my 
uh, district tartan, or I want to wear just a, a nice bold red tartan to be the loudest kilt at the St. Andrews Society dinner. And I'm going to, you know, uh, get a formal kilt because I'm going to be wearing it for more formal events. So you kind of have to really dissect yourself and your intentions and then make decisions based on that so that you're not wasting money. Yeah. I'd say imagine yourself in the, in the scenarios. <clears throat> imagine yourself out doing something in a kilt and imagine, you know, what kilt feels right for that for that occasion you know it's all about where you're going to be what yep. you're going to be doing yeah and then should you consider budget at the same time or is that <clears throat> secondary um if you're yes budget's always a thing yeah. um for 99 percent of people mm -hmm. so it's a that's partially why you need to this to really figure out where do you want to wear it that's yeah, okay. part of the budget thing if you say, I want to wear it for formal events, then I wouldn't recommend the casual kilt. But if you're on a budget, then you may want to, okay, well, not the casual, but maybe the next one up. Mm -hmm. Or what's the, start asking questions of the of the kilt maker, and what is the nicest kilt I can get for about this much money? Mm -hmm. And kind of work with the, whatever company you want to work with, but work with them back and forth to kind of figure out within your budget, here are some things to consider. Where should I go with this? And trust them. So whether it's us or whether it's another company, any good company with a good reputation is going to be able to kind of guide you through the process. One of the things we kind of talk about is we're not really salesmen. We are more guides to Highland wear. We want to make sure that whatever you want is what you end up with. You know, the, the expectations match the reality of the thing that you end up with. Yeah. So we wanna, you know, a, a good company will help do that and will help take your actual feedback, your wants, your needs in the outfit and then steer you in the right direction. Yeah, and I would make sure that, uh, to be realistic, make sure that when you're doing that initial budgeting kind of brainstorming, uh, leave room for a couple of accessories. It may be just a sporn, Fair. or maybe a sporn and a pair of kilt hose, or it may be a sporn and a belt, but almost certainly you're going to want to get a sporn at the same time. So make sure you leave room for that in your figuring. Yeah. That's now, it. I'll say this. When you get a kilt, you can still start with a basic sporn, yeah. and then work your way up to a nicer, fancier sporn. Sure. If it's, you know, if, if budget is the main concern, I'd say stick the bulk of your resources into the kilt, um, and then okay. accessorize accordingly. And it's easier to buy, like, just using an example, you know, money-wise. If the kilt is 500 bucks and you have a total of 600 bucks to spend, then get a nice kilt, get a pair of hose, a set of flashes, and a $50 sporn. And then as money allows later on, it's easier to replace a $50 sporn than a $500 kilt. Yeah, yeah, or if you're like, ah, I wish I'd spent the extra money to get the nicer kilt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When it, think of it like you know when you're when you're building a house, you put in the money into the structural things that you need to be there that are going to be much more expensive to replace later on. Then the little upgrades, like ah, eh, I'll replace the carpet in five years. It's not a little upgrade; it's money, but it's better than moving all the walls. Or you know, eh, I'll redo the kitchen counters in 10 years and I'll save that money instead of buying granite and I'll put this extra area on this room over here. Right. It's You want to think of the things that are going to be more expensive to do later 
that you can get away with for now yeah. and then invest yeah. the money the in the foundation. Make sure yeah. you got your foundation. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Cool. All right, Mr. Lucas, we'll do one more from you and then one more from Eric. Okay. Uh, this is a serious question from our dear friend Chris. Okay. Chris is asking, what is the cost of making custom kilt pins? <clears throat> if only I knew a company that made custom kilt pins. <laughs> um, uh, nobody does that. That's crazy talk. That's crazy talk, I tell you. We actually just designed uh, two Viking in uh, Viking-inspired kilt pins, our Fenrir yep. kilt pin as well as a uh, Mjolnir kilt pin. Um, there's a lot of different costs depending on what you're doing with it and if it's just for you or if it's for a mass audience and that kind of yep. thing. <clears throat> Our costs are multiple. Um, first, you have to hire an artist to draw the thing. Um, we are not great artists, you know, for hand, you know, pen and paper drawing. Mm. So we have our buddy Doug, who does a lot of really, really cool Celtic artwork and, and Nordic artwork. So we had him, we paid him to, you know, well, the Fenrir design is actually his, but we just tweaked it a little bit. And uh, we have him kind of interpret our thoughts and make it look good. Then from there... You have to go to one of the pewter mills and you have to have them basically they have an artist who will cast or you know with artist clay actually mold the thing and make a three-dimensional representation of the finished product and then there's the uh, uh the process of actually creating the master mold and then creating the production molds and then the actual production run of the items if you're looking for one kilt pin that you want to design for yourself it is going to be a very, very expensive kilt pin, and it's going to take about six months-ish to have it in your hand. Hmm. Um, that being said, if you're doing something like we did, which we are making these to sell, or if you're doing it for a group, the cost yeah. of the artwork and the artist to actually create the mold and then you know, the uh, the artist like you know rendering and all that kind of stuff that can be amortized over the entire breadth of your entire you know group that you're doing mm -hmm. so it may be you know uh, 500 bucks ish for a single kilt pin just for you or if you have 50 people who are doing it it's going to be closer to 30 bucks a piece for all those different kilt pins so it really boils down to how many people are going in on the project or if it's just you or if it's you know a, a large group yeah we did uh we've done one or two for pipe bands for instance, or Masonic and, and, groups. Yeah, yeah, and Masonic groups. are basically, um, if you have a design in the works, or it can that can uh, speed things up at least. Yes. You know, getting a 3D rendering put together or something like that, or even you know Photoshop. Of, you know, if you have a logo, you have a starting point, then uh, it's it's easier to, to get it going. And if it's for a large group, the larger the group, the better. Yeah. Basically. Absolutely. Or if your design is really so awesome that we love it, we'll get it done and then we'll give you one and then we will sell them to everybody else. Huh? Are you promising me things? No. Are no, you promising know. things on my behalf? No. <clears throat> okay. I was just saying there's there's more than one way to, to work. Skin a cat, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like if somebody Understood. came to us with a design for a, you know, a Swedish-American kilt pin and we thought we could sell Swedish-American kilt pins to everybody, then then maybe there's a minor partnership potential there, but I don't know. Fair. That's not very likely, but uh, you know what I mean. But it's yeah, yeah. I, the, really, the group thing is the best way to go. Yeah. Get, just like with the kilts, it's basically the more people you have involved, the more likely is you can bring off the the project and have it be really, really cool. Yep. Yeah. Okay. 
Very good. That's it. So I get to do the last one, or you are we do done? the last one? Okay. All right. You're gonna love this. If you camp, or hike, or hunt in a kilt, do you do any of those? Sure. Okay. Let's say you do. How do you prefer to protect yourself from insects like ticks and chiggers? If you're wearing a kilt, how do you keep yourself from getting a, getting ticks or chiggers? I don't know if you can. It, it, bike shorts, um, mm -hmm. tick spray. It's you know, ticks. You know, the the rule of thumb for ticks is wear loose or uh, excuse me tight fitting clothing. Yeah. And yeah. potentially or ideally solid color. Yeah. So, so you can actually see a tick crawling on it, kind of thing. So right. you can identify it before it latches on. Right. Um, a kilt is not solid color. A kilt is loose fitting. And a kilt has a lot of places in the pleats for a tick to hide. Yep. So. Yep. I can tell you this. Um, I worry about it more now since Lyme disease and tick populations have been on the up, up tick, Fair. no pun intended, in Pennsylvania. Um, eight years ago or whatever, I didn't worry about it nearly as much. Now I'm more likely to put on, you know, something more like pants if I'm going into the deep woods for a long, you know, for a long period of time. When yeah. I have done, um, I have done gone kilted into the into the outback, outback, you know, whatever to the steakhouse. If when I've gone <laughs> camping and hiking in a kilt before, and I prefer to hike in a kilt, um, I basically pour on lots and lots of the of bug spray. Yeah, and I will put bug spray in places which you wouldn't necessarily think of having bug spray, but I do it. Um, occasionally, I've done bike shorts underneath, but part of the whole reason of why you hike in a kilt is for that ventilation factor. So you're kind of ruining that if you're wearing bike shorts underneath. But if you're worried about the ticks, there's not much else you can do. Um, the spray is really about the only thing you can you can really do. And it depends on where you're going hiking, though. It, def you're, it definitely depends on yeah. It if depends I'm on in, your area. If I'm in Valley Forge Park and the grass is lower, and I'm not you know in in waist high grass and under a ton of trees and not like you know hacking through brush, <clears throat> then fine. If it's just a day hike on the path. A kilt would be fine. Well, yeah, but I don't consider that um, wilderness at all. That's, that's agreed. Yeah. Um, but if it's, yeah, if you're actually having to, you know, hack through bushes and stuff, <laughs> then yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're, yeah, it's if if you're on the AT, then I would say Appalachian Trail. Then, um, yeah, I'd say the bike shorts are the safest thing to do. But uh, you may find that it's if you're willing to tolerate the risk, then uh, get a good can of off or your preferred product and. Use the heck out of it. Um, use especially around the ankles. Um, you can do the hem, you know, the bottom edge of the kilt, just like you know some guys will uh, they'll spray bug spray along the brim of their hat. Um, same kind of tactic uh, that works. And either, do you do that, Lucas? You've I've, hiked, right? I've gone out a couple times hiking yeah. in a kilt, but normal amount of bug spray usually. Usually and, okay. And I'm not I'm not going through anything crazy either. Yeah, so. I'm talking. Yeah, and I'm talking like a weekend, not like an extended trip yeah. too. So. Yeah. Um, it's not something you... I, I always say experiment and see what works for you. <laughs> but I don't know. A little more caution than that might be warranted. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Check out... Uh, does off, you know, repel ticks? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know there's specific tick sprays. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if off included I think, that as I well. I think off is still still preferred product. I'm sure there's more fancy fancy stuff out there now. And, of course, there's the, right. the more environmentally friendly things, which we sometimes use in my family, too. Um, but, um, and they do smell nicer, I'll say that. Very good. But, yeah, I just pour it on, would cool. be my advice. 
Okay. All right, boys and girls. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Yeah. <clears throat> in on next Friday, uh, the oh the fifteenth. Fifteenth. Yeah. We're gonna do a special edition of Exploring Perspectives. That's our show that we do actually over on YouTube or oh yeah on YouTube natively. Yep. So we'll put a link on here later on and uh, show you guys about that. It's gonna be a really awesome episode. I completely forget what the topic was, <laughs> but when Eric and I were going over it, we both got really excited. Yep. So whatever it is, it's going to be good. We just don't remember. Anyway, <laughs> any other things you need to uh, housekeeping bits? I don't think so. I think we're in good shape. Okay, very good. Then until next time, boys and girls, Slajava. Thanks for joining us, guys. Our podcast theme song is Gold and Guns by the Kilmaine Saints. If you have a question for us, you can ask it during our YouTube live stream the first Friday of every month at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. If you want to get social with other kilt enthusiasts, go check out the Kilts and Culture group over on Facebook. You can also find USA Kilts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or over at our website, usakilts.com. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, Slanjava.